Hello and welcome to episode three of series six of One Foot the Podcast, discussing the futility of the fly. This week I've got a brand new guest. He's a relative of mine. His name is Chris. Welcome, Chris. Hello. Thanks for having me on, Tom. It's okay. You sound very formal. <laughs> I think in I think in if we were seeing each other in person, it'd be like, all right. Yeah, you're and, right. uh, we're on we're on a Zoom call now, so it's a bit of a different vibe, isn't it? Yeah, well, thanks for coming on to the uh, podcast. It's, like I said, it's your debut. I've known you for many years. We're basically marriage-related cousins, so, you know, we've become good pals over the years, sharing a taste for British comedy. Also, you're a bit of a budding writer, are you not? <laughs> That's probably stretching it a bit, but yeah. yeah. Before lockdown, you were with a colleague. You had something written down, didn't you, at the very least? Getting a pilot episode we- out there. Yeah, we were we were writing a pilot of probably the worst ever written comedy ever known. But um says who? You so, that, that's your yeah, modest yeah. that's your modesty right there, isn't it? <laughs> um but yeah, we 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 both about the same age. We both love one from the grave, hence you're on this podcast right now. I've been trying to get you on for quite a few series and uh, I managed to book you onto the show. Thank God you uh, said yes. And you you sent um quite an amusing creative acceptance. This Thursday, a podcast like no other, One Foot in the Pod, the hit podcast that podcasting podcasts wish they could podcast like, will welcome its worst ever guest. He'll be ill-informed. He won't know what he's saying. But hey! So Chris, um, growing up in the 90s like myself, apart from One Foot in the Grave, what kind of sitcoms were you uh, glued to? It's, yeah, there's a, there's a few. I guess it's like all of those ones of that era. So um, One Foot in the Grave, obviously, but also things like Keeping Up Appearances. And then there was a lot of reruns as well, like Only Fools and Horses would be on, but then also things like Allo And um, that's like the worst French accent you'll ever hear on this <laughs> podcast. All of those things that, because you had limited channels, didn't you? And yeah. sort of, um, you just watch what you could. Yeah. And I used to watch One Foot in the Podcast because I saved up for a TV in my bedroom. Used to, I was quite used to, young still. So did, did you say you used to watch one for the podcast? <laughs> I'm sure you <laughs> said that. It's come. The podcast well, is yeah. bigger than the program. Oh, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to keep doing that. Well, I'm blushing. Um, <laughs> like, sorry, yeah, one for the grave. One for the grave. Yeah. Yeah. So I used to like things like that. I used to watch. Like I saved up for a TV. Yeah. Yeah. I used to watch all those kind of ones. I guess like um, all the ones that the BBC would put on, and then. Some that I probably shouldn't watch as well, like Bottom and mm. the Young oh, we Ones. We love Bottom, don't we? You and I. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of Bottom references between us. So it was just watching what, what you could. And yeah, like I said, I saved up for a TV. I was quite young, but I had older sisters and they had TVs. So I convinced my parents I should be allowed a TV in my room. And then I used to just stay up way later than I should for my age and just yeah. watch them. And I'd put like a T-shirt along the bottom of my door <laughs> so they wouldn't know I was watching it, turn it down to minuscule volume. And, and yeah. just watch things like One Foot in the Grave and all these others. And I think there's just it's all that nostalgia, isn't it? I still enjoy it watching is, them yeah. now. So, and this so, episode, watching this one back, I can remember watching it at the time. Yeah. And this thing's like that is brilliant. Because it's the year 2000, this series of the year 2000, we're old enough now to, more than old enough at the time, to, to keep that memory in our brains for the next 20 odd years. I can't say, like I've said before, I, I wasn't watching One Foot in the Grave from 1990. I was four. I was probably I probably watched the first episode or two by the time 94, 95 came around. 
and I don't know what episode that would have been. Definitely whatever my grandparents had on video and then any reruns on the BBC. And then obviously from probably the Christmas specials onwards through to Series 6, watching it live. And uh, it's one of those sitcoms you don't truly, I don't feel like I truly appreciated for quite some time because unfortunately it probably did live in the shadow of only fools because although the fools and horses was the 80s just got bigger and bigger in the early mid 90s thanks to their christmas annual christmas special event but i still think one for the group is massive it had huge viewing figures as time passes i think people look back like me and go yeah that was an extraordinary sitcom that had so many layers to it compared to most sitcoms arguably more layers to it than fools and horses it's really good, isn't it? I didn't realise that until you started doing this podcast. And then I started following along and watching some of them and listening to the episodes and stuff. And then you realise just how good it is. Yeah. Because at the time, I just found it quite funny as a child. Yeah. Growing up. And I enjoyed it because, like, I didn't know my granddads and stuff growing up because one of them died young and then the other one died when I was young. So, like, for me, like, Victor Meldrew represented elderly men. He was like a granddad, yeah. I guess, in a way. Yeah. My, Spiritual and, granddad. Yeah, and you build up like this connection with the program, but it's only looking back that I realised just how clever and how funny it is. There's some really good bits in there, and actually, it's the acting's quite good as well. Like in this episode, there's a couple of bits. Victor is just brilliant. Victor, yeah, he's, he's Richard Wilson and Nick Crosby are just a great double act, aren't they? Yeah, and the side characters cool. are just phenomenal. Thankfully, luckily for me, my grandparents were, you know, with me up until late 20s early 30s and got vivid memories of watching the episodes back with them like many many others have said to me mostly watching the show with family or or grandparents and uh yeah that's definitely why i i kept watching it and quickly realized when you get older bloody hell these these storylines are dark very very poignant the word poignant is used on this probably about 12 times each episode I, i kind of my vocabulary only goes so far. <laughs> when I have guests on, they usually teach me a new phrase or a word. That's, that's a good way to put it. I'll use that next time. I think that the pathos is spoken about with this show. And Series 6 is sad to watch because you know it's going to finish and Victor's demise is on the way. You know, certain outside characters, you know you're going to see one last time. And as we'll speak about later, Mrs. Warboys, this is her final ever appearance in one foot in the grave dory mantle made an absolute name for herself in this sitcom she could she could have had her own sitcom spin-off in my view maybe with mr swaney because she was fantastic i don't know if you'll agree with me later on in how it's a little disappointing that the character of mrs warboys had to sort of well she left on a on a very much a negative note and she didn't get a chance to say goodbye to victor and we know None of the cats has got a chance to say goodbye to Victor because we know how, how he goes. But I think as an actress, I think Doreen was a little bit upset. I think that, well, on behalf of Mrs. Warboys herself, that was the last time she gets to see Victor is under such circumstances of the mix-up of all mix-ups in a sort of sexual way, you know? And it is a shame for the character, but still. I This episode, I think, is vastly underrated because from what I read and hear, some fans look at the the plot line i think there's not really much that happens but i completely disagree it's a very meaningful episode and hilarious and weird and it comes at a very interesting angle as well in terms of storytelling yeah i thought there's there's quite a bit hidden in there isn't there i think 
But it is, and, and the ending that you mentioned, I don't want to spoil it, obviously, but it is, it's funny. But then when you bring into perspective, kind of as you say, that's her last appearance. Yeah. It is yeah. a bit of a, a kicker, isn't it? It is. And it's one of those things I didn't really take on board until, well, in the last 15, 16 months of doing this podcast, there's quite a lot I didn't really realise um, about One from the Grave when I was watching it growing up. And I would say there are fans out there who probably have dug deeper into this sitcom a long time before I did and knew certain things I might have observed or guests observed. They, other fans probably would already know, but I'm always discovering things all the time. Uh, I think I've gone from being a big fan to a super fan because I've I've taken the time and, and I know others have as well long before me to really read into certain plot lines and some of the storytelling, just understanding what certain subtleties there are in the show. But yeah, absolutely love it. So what would you say is your favourite series out of the whole of One from the Grave? Or do you not really have one? Or is there a particular episode you're fond of? I probably don't have one. I think I think there's just a few different episodes that I really enjoyed at the time. And but my my growing up, I didn't watch this in chronological order. And although I've been following it through your podcast and rewatching it, in my mind it still jumps around a bit because I just watched it in it's really bizarre order and sort of um, whatever the, the BBC chose to do, yeah. Yeah, I'm exactly the same. I, I never watched this in chronological order until I think when the DVD box set first came out, early 2000s, probably straight after Series 6 finished, because DVDs became huge, didn't they? 2001, 2002. Probably at the time was watching a few episodes I hadn't seen before. It's a pleasure to review it, actually, and I think probably it's about time uh, we stop waffling and we die straight in. I'm ready. Ready and waiting. Oh, I'm the grave. A quick synopsis before we go, and this isn't one I've written up. Victor hires an attractive cleaner to help around the house and inadvertently gets Mrs. Warboys tattooed. Meanwhile, a large plastic fly is delivered and something's going on at the local takeaway. When you first read that plot, you're thinking, I'm intrigued to know about this plastic fly. But that's for a conversation later on in the podcast. So op- opening up then this episode is quite unusual when you're watching it for the first time for a few seconds you're just thinking this is any it's like any other opening of an episode we've got the view of the or a glimpse of the Meldrews dining room area looking partly into the kitchen we hear the doorbell go and the cries of someone who you presumably think would be Victor oh god almighty but instantly we know it's not uh, it sounds nothing like him and it in fact it's a completely different actor shouting out in response to the doorbell uh, using one of many catchphrases, God Almighty! It seems to be sort of like a parallel universe of the Meldrews, and this this apparent Victor Meldrew Im- imposter, shall we say, it's called Hilton. Actually, I don't think it's mentioned until a little bit later. Is going to the extreme lengths to not to not answer the door, as he knows it's the Jehovah Witnesses coming over to bother him again. And we've seen that before in this show, where Vic- we haven't seen Victor make an excuse as such to not answer the door. But we know he he has he's got that sort of common feeling amongst many of us when we've got somebody of a religious background at your door preaching something that, to be honest with you, rarely happens. I probably have had maybe three instances. I don't know about you, Chris. If you if there's anyone knocking your door preaching, not very often. No, no, it's not. It's not that common, is it? It's not anymore. It's not. Anymore. Did it used to be more common though? Maybe. I um, so. yeah. yeah. I think so. Yeah. I suppose. Every every little detail in, in One Foot in the Grave is coming from the mind of David Renwick, who is channeling all his things in life that would grate him. And I suppose this can be annoying 
because I, I think the cliche situation is you answer the door and you can't get rid of whoever it may be, especially if they're preaching to you about a religion. It could be a salesman. He's touched upon the sales, the irritating salesman calls before in um, Who Will Buy. This, I'm going to call him a Victor imposter. He's, he looks similar. This this actor looks sort of the same sort of age. They've obviously dressed him just like Victor. I wonder what you're thinking at this point, though. Like, when you first watch this, what do you think the hell's going on before we see more of a reveal? Because we we also see a Margaret-type woman who's called Ruthie looking on in disbelief as this Hilton, unbuttoning his um, shirt, he's taking off his cardi, he's got a bucket of foamy uh, water, <laughs> spreading it all over his chest. All of that effort just to answer the door to say... Just getting ready to go out, I'm afraid. Otherwise, I'd love to stay and chat, but nice to have met you anyway. Bye. Yeah, there's a lot of effort, isn't it? Massive amounts of effort. But it is, I think, when I was watching it, I thought yeah. it was great casting by the... Like, in terms of how they look so similar to... I don't want to give too much away, because we're probably going to... That's, that's fine, yeah. Like, in terms of... They look quite similar to Victor and Mrs. Meldrew, don't they? Well, they've got the same... I mean, the, the lady, the, the Margaret imposter, looks a lot taller. Yeah. Uh, but they don't... Basically, it's... Yeah, very, very close. We do hear a few lines of dialogue that will become very much a prominent laugh-out-loud and fairly significant moment later on. But I'm not sure we're really supposed to process what's been spoken of by these... Basically, these two amateur dramatic actors at this moment because I do, like, no. I do remember thinking what the bloody hell's going on here it's, it's a fascinating opening it's quite surreal isn't it and I'll be honest I, when I started watching the episode I thought have I clipped on to a dodgy knockoff <laughs> like is it some kind yeah. of remake in America or something from the 90s I was like what have I done yeah dodgy Douglas from uh, Victor's local video store has sold you something a bit suspect yeah. there but some of these one-liners like I said, are recognisable and believable, maybe in a slightly adaptive way, such as, oh, we've been cursed since the day we were born and God Almighty. What does it look like I'm doing? Castrating an elephant? These are the sorts of lines Victor would say. And the stage is then sort of seen from an audience's perspective with Katie Carmichael, the actress, looking on. We don't actually know her. Her name in this is called, she's called Katie as well, by the way. She's called Katie in real life and she's called Katie. She's obviously written this. So this is a stage play now. It's become apparent that someone, some unknown person who we know to be Katie, is put on some sort of play. But we're thinking, what, what's, what? How does she know Victor and Margaret? Why is she putting on something to basically mock them? And she's looking on in awe, almost sort of, yeah, she's proud. This is something she's written, and she's also sat next to Paul Clayton. And Peep Show fans will know Paul Clayton as he played the character Ian Chapman in Peep Show, uh, Olivia Coleman's on-screen father. And he, this chap, he's look, he's a bit of an arsehole, I think. He's looking a bit unimpressed, a bit bemused. Much how you'd maybe imagine David Renwick to look if he'd witnessed someone else trying to produce uh, an adaption or adaptation of, of a one-foot type stage show. Or maybe how Renwick might look at other comedies in general. But he, this chap doesn't look too impressed. I noticed you don't see the audience laugh when we do see the, the point of view of the three watching on. The audience, as we know it, find it hilarious that it's just some stage play. The Meldred lives are being played out in, a, in such a way that it's like it's mocking them, but uh, mimicking them all the same. Paul Clayton is playing a character called Mitch Werner. Yeah, and I, I was really glad. When, like, I love this about watching these old episodes as well, is that you see people that you recognise. Yeah. Like you said, he was on Peep Show and stuff, and he's like one of those classic jobbing actors. I'm sure you used to get more of them. They'd just do like one episode of certain programmes, mm. wouldn't they? And he yeah, passes that's right. like what I call the doctor's test. He's been on doctors a few times. 
the bill. Yeah, yeah, the bill. Actually. Yeah, that's what they used to do, isn't it? Just go around and do odd, odd episodes. Everyone's been on the bill. I think even I've been on the bill. <laughs> yeah, Mitch Werner is playing this. To me, he's a bit of an ass. He he then the, the scene then cuts to the actors and this Katie and Mitch, and he's very skeptical, isn't he, of what he's just seen? Okay, how can I put this, folks? It's a little bit Brian Riggs, wouldn't you say? And let's be honest, any broader, you'd be performing in a circus ring. Specifically? Specifically, you're looking at a plot here no audience in the West End is ever going to buy into. I mean, finding someone's finger in a bag of chips. And then you've got the scene where he hilariously ends up in the bath with that old lady. Listen, the biggest problem of all is your central character. People want someone with warmth, someone they can relate to. I don't know what planet this guy's off, but it's certainly not Earth. Well, you say that, but here's the thing. I've actually met this man in real life, and I'm telling you, everything you've just seen happened. There is no way I could invent this kind of stuff. Yeah, what he says, it's a bit Brian Ricks. Yeah, and is that a reference that... Did you have to look up Brian Ricks in the sense of what? what's that culture reference? Um, yeah, I didn't get it. I didn't get it. Did you get it straight away? No, and I'm quite honest in that a lot of references do go over my head. And I think some of these references are almost dated at the time, but still, I think a certain generation would understand. But I, yeah, looking up, it is, um, he was a seasoned professional in the acting world and he died only in 2016, age 92. So I'm presuming that Brian Ricks was mostly in the types of film. Um, or programs that were considered corny or a bit unbelievable is, is, yeah, I is said, what I, I took read, from that. I read that he produced the record-breaking sequence of long-running farces on the London stage, whatever that means. Yeah, I don't know. So obviously, like, I took it to be an unbelievable yeah. kind of silly comedy, I guess, or like performances. What message What message was Renwick trying to put out by way of writing a fictional comedy within a fictional comedy? Who might he have been actually poking fun at, do we think? I mean, obviously, this is all in chronological order, so maybe as time goes by, we might have a a better idea. I'm just trying to think, he must be pointing the finger at someone. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit of a strange one, isn't it? It does make you think, though. Or it certainly made me think, probably because I didn't understand what was going on. Because we've heard a few funny instances in this stage play, are we, the audience, thinking at this moment, this is going to happen about, you know, the chip shop incident and... You know other things because I I think in, it's a spoiler straight away because you must think oh we're going to see this then aren't we I don't know I don't know if you thought that at the time it, it's, I did, it's, I it's mentioned did. subtly isn't it yeah it's sort of yeah it sort of felt like maybe that's coming but I'll be honest I was still a bit sort of unsure where it was going I was sort of still caught off guard by this knockoff knockoff episode knockoff yeah, yeah. knockoff <laughs> stage performance and kind of wondering where it's going Mitchell who looks like some sort of, I think is he must be some sort of theatre stage man, or a director probably who would commission a play, I don't know. He he basically doesn't believe the audience would relate to the central character. Like not, not like a, he's not like a warming character. He doesn't think this guy is even from planet Earth. So going to my, to my earlier sort of question, who's Renwick mocking? Renwick is probably mocking some of the um, critics of Mourn from the Grave who probably initially didn't give one foot in the grave a, a fair crack of the whip in terms of understanding the direction the character was going and the reason why Victor is 
acts the way he is or why he has these certain views of the world uh, open to theory i'd have to ask the big man myself i suppose if i get another chance i have does, had another yeah chance. i think and that's a good theory though it does because it does have that sense about it doesn't it like maybe when he was sort of pitching it originally he's had yeah, some maybe. feedback or maybe the critics sort of like reacted in a certain way yes and actually it's gone on to have six series be very successful yeah it's 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 like john cleese said when um faulty towers got already got terrible reviews and i think one of the reviews he's got framed still saying this will never make it basically God, i wish i could remember the quote but it's basically slagging off faulty towers it's, it's going nowhere it's not a it's not going to be a hit and he, he kept up in his in his uh apartment as a like a trophy i suppose this this Katie, young lady who has apparently written this play, it turns out she yeah she's written this play. She's met this character in real life, so the story is developing a little bit now. We're giving a bit more information. She's obviously met Victor before, and everything she's written about has happened. She's met him in real life. I can't possibly have invented this stuff. And this this Mitchell, I, I wrote he's almost like a, a Patrick two point Think how he view Victor if he lived next door to him. We know how how Patrick behaves around Victor. Think of this guy. Now I'm thinking, yeah, Renwick is definitely perhaps giving one back to any possible critics who may have had a swipe at, at the character development of One Foot and some of its bizarre storylines. But it is a good way for him to channel this on a, like a big scale, I suppose. The, the, the cast and Katie are trying to convince Mitchell, like, just put the play on tonight, see how it goes. Blimey, that actor, the one playing Victor, is saying, let's go ahead with it tonight. That, talk about last-minute planning. In, yeah. in that, that theatre, they're going to put on this show i presume they sold tickets right unless it's just buy buy them on the door and hope people turn up i did find it a bit weird because the, there's also the set isn't there it looks like their house the set is made yeah it's already built so sort of oh. why are they pitching it last minute it, that it does fall down a bit there but i guess it doesn't work in terms of confusing you in that initial moment if they don't have the set there that's very true yeah it's very true and, I, and it, yeah it looks pretty much identical maybe slightly smaller but it has got to fit on that stage. Whereas in the TV studios, they've probably got a lot more space to work with, I I, I would imagine anyway. Yeah. Incidentally, the, yeah, the Victor and Margaret imposters are played by a Richard Evans and a Jean Trend. And by way of coincidence only, you have Richard Evans, Sharon Richards, Wilson's acting name, and and Jean Trend, Sharon Doreen's character name. So purely a coincidence, but I just thought, oh, didn't make that little small connection. That Richard, he's um, not Richard Wilson, Richard Evans, barely been active in TV since 2005, and he wasn't in too much before that. I think peak practice was all all that I could recognise, and that Gene Trend, uh, close match to the name Gene Trench, I, I say Trench because that's the Patrick and Pippa surname, is still quite active even to this year, so she's been quite a lot, um, so she's still going going strong, which is nice to see. Yeah. The next scene, Margaret is running a bath, and they're, they're sort of cut to the kitchen, Peering through the back door. She's looking through the back door, through the netted curtains, and we can hear somebody working outside. Victor, meanwhile, comes back into the to the Melju's house. Um, he's just come back from the tip by the sounds of it. And the <laughs> first thing he says is the place is like a, a hubcap that he's found in the Marigolds. Hubcaps are one of those pieces of litter, shall we say, that you just don't see anymore because pretty much all cars have alloy wheels. So therefore, they don't have the plastic um, hubcaps attached to them. But you'd always see one on the side of the road, wouldn't you? But he's... Um, lit- litter littering in the Meltrews garden is a constant in their lives and um, th- this is just the latest thing and he's, he's so used to it he's quite blasé is about it, it isn't he yeah is the way he says another another hubcap in the marigolds yeah marigolds as well very much a flower of the time I think 
Yes. But, um, like, not that I know my flowers, but yeah, it's just the way he comes in and dumps it down. Very much a 90s problem, I think, isn't it? It is. Margaret's quite disgruntled that Fix has brought home a bag of chips, which are all cold, and she's concerned to know if he's visited the mad Italians who are, who are always arguing. I just put a little crappy one-foot pun joke and to say that he should have visited Chippy Joe, turned up in an early episode, and he's not a Chippy, he's a carpenter. But Chippy Joe might work as a very crap gag. But Renwick doesn't write crap gags. There's always some great comedy when, when Vix has been shopping, though, whether it be, um, and again, this is jogging your memory, Chris, but whether it be buying a Polish sherry or packing a loaf of bread and putting it at the bottom of the bag, which is a common mistake to make, or perhaps buying old women's tights, um, I think purchased that for Margaret in an earlier episode. It just doesn't ever go right. Anyway, Victor responds to Margaret's disappointment that obviously Victor's visited the mad Italian chippy by way of announcing his his and I love this. Victor goes to that chippy because they'll do a nice piece of gurnet. <laughs> yeah. And that's a funny word. That that sim that one line, I think it's a class as a one liner, but the way Richard Wilson the way he delivers his lines make me laugh anyway, make us all laugh. But the the name Gurnet, uh, it doesn't sound appetizing in the slightest, I don't. But I think it's clever Renwick to to simply not opt for like cod or haddock in this instance. Gurnet was just perfect. Dwelling on that far too much, but in a positive sense. No, I I, I quite liked that touch as well. That was very Victor. I liked it. He's he was quite defensive about it and um call me a uh, old fashioned so and so, but I just don't as- associate Italians and chips. Go down the Italian to buy the chips. I don't know. It's not an Italian, I know, but it's just unusual. I think you probably get done for sort of some sort of cultural appropriation now, whatever they call it. But Victor recounts a bit of gossip about um, Enrico. He, he runs the chippy. He reckons he was caught by his wife at it with her best friend. And there's a great line in there from Victor describing how Enrico was about to, you know, get it on with this with this lady. Putting on what he thought was a contraceptive turned out to be a sachet of mustard. <laughs> I just love that. Just the image. It's a bit of a... He sort of wins at the idea of someone thinking they're putting on a, a condom and it's just some hot mustard. It's going to hurt. <laughs> I did, yeah. But it, it, all of the way that he describes it sets quite a picture, doesn't it? Of it mm. sort of being dark and like fumbling around and yeah. in the shop and stuff. <laughs> it's silly. The silliness of that situation as well. I was just going to say the ability of, of Renwick to be so innovative with like storytelling. I've spoken about previously about the like local newspaper articles that I mentioned in this show uh, from Mimsy Berkowitz and some of the Dear Deirdre type columns are just so funny. There's, I think that there is a bit of a pun as well. As I say it's not purposely done, but Enrique's wife caught them. His wife heard the screams, ran downstairs and tried to batter them both to death. <laughs> of course, the batter was cold, so she went completely <laughs> doolally with a meat cleaver. But yeah, it, it she tries quite well, doesn't it? Because it condenses in this really short period of like discussion mm. how this guy, Enrico, was being naughty and getting up stuff with this his wife's best friend as it's described yeah yeah and then how he gets caught as well because it's set up by that mustard and him shouting so his wife hears and comes running down yeah jokes about the batter and actually it's it's quite a condensed bit of conversation isn't it but it it gives such a powerful bit of sort of storyline in a a real short time yeah it is good Um, and some of these scenes are quite short as well because we go to the garden and that noise we previously heard from outside is in fact um, Mrs. Warboys sawing a piece of timber. I don't quite know why. Victor, he walks past and I'm, I'm sure, 
I'm not sure if Victor is offering up a bit of rare, like a bit, rare bit of teasing, teasing by way of subtle humour, but he sort of rhetorically asks that he hopes the piece of timber isn't his favourite clothes prop or something. And I think it's just for a bit of firewood or something. And I know Mrs. Warboys, I don't you know, she lives in a, like a little ground floor flat, and I don't know if ground floor flats would have a fireplace, would they? It wouldn't make sense. Anyway, That's a good point, I don't know. But it's yeah. quite funny, isn't it? Because she's sort of struggling away, sawing. Yeah. And then yeah. we see her grab her shoulder as shoulder, well, don't yeah. we? And yeah. yeah, he he sort of just walks by, he doesn't offer to help. Yeah, he doesn't, does he? And uh like I was like we were saying earlier, unfortunately, sadly, Gene Warboys is last ever appearance. Um it's quite a sad and empty feeling that as we progress in the series, yeah, one or two characters will simply not be returning uh to the show as we know. So uh he didn't really get to say goodbye to Victor. This is the nature of of how he goes so in, you know so instantly, but back inside the house, there's there's some funky Ed Welch signature semi incidental music playing as we're being geared up for some some silliness, aren't we? As Victor's headed back in, indoors and obviously to the bath that we we'd seen Margaret previously run. Margaret setting up the table, she heads to sit sort of sit down in the living room and. I think she's watching some sort of sea life program, isn't she? I think it's narrated by yeah. none other than David Remick himself. And there's like a cut back to Victor seeing what well, tending to the bath, putting a bit of radox in. Radox, yeah, which again like goes back to the grandparents, doesn't it? Because my nan used to always have radox. Yeah, I think I probably was using radox when I was in my teens as well. <laughs> I think it was yeah. all before my time. I whatever was available, I suppose. In comes Mrs. Warboys. She hears the immediate call out from for Margaret that she's run a bath. I'm presuming it was definitely for Mrs. Warboys, wasn't it? This bath, as Victor made assumptions. Yeah, I do. I, I presume so because the way um the way she calls out, it's it's at the same time, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, but you can definitely sense that sort of um, impending kind of confusion. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'd written down literally, but we can see more than a clear, impending, unfortunate incident that is about to happen. All cleverly unraveled in sync with the nature program Margaret's watching as the narrator talks about these sea like creatures. No idea what breed it is. They're not, they're not, it's not Gurnet. I think there is a, I've just got the, I've just clicked there actually. There's a very, I don't think you can call this a connection between the Italian chip shop with fish and then obviously what Margaret's watching on the TV, fish. I don't know, that's probably not purposely done. But the setup is great because with Renwick yeah, commentating that the male selecting a mature female whilst waiting for her to settle into the water. And all the while, you know, Victor is undressing. Mrs. Warboy is now in the bath. We know what's going to happen. It's a very steamy bathroom. No use of an extractor fan there, Chris. Did you notice that? I did. I made that. I read that down around... How, how has he managed to get it so steamy? What It doesn't yeah. make sense, but it, it sets the scene, doesn't it? Well, I don't know if you remember Hearts of Darkness in the care home um, where Victor helps himself to a, a shower. And that's another incident where he gets completely naked. The house manager walks in, but it's completely steamed up. But they got they got to make it steamy just so we don't, I suppose the audience don't see too much, but also so Victor doesn't see Mrs. Warboys and vice versa. We're cutting, yeah. we're, we're, we're cutting to him from what Margaret's watching and we're just seeing the mature female settled into the water looking very pleased for herself like Mrs. Warboys is and then obviously in comes Victor 
fairly bollock naked now. And um, when we go back to the documentary that Mark is watching, we can just hear Renwick. I just call him Renwick because it is Renwick. Attaches his jelly-like protuberance to her body. And that's a word I, I, I've never used or, or heard before. And cue the very loud shriek from from uh, Mrs. Warboys and the cries of help from, from Victor. <laughs> And Margaret dashes upstairs to see what the commotion is. And that is an instant end of scene. So it's quite a start, isn't it? It is, yeah. It is. The way it develops as well, it's more than I you sort of initially expect. The way they build it out and develop it so they're both sort of starkers, completely starkers, in yeah. a bath together. It's, it's quite clever. And they're both, Mrs. Warboys and Victor, throughout the series, have got this... Sort of got a mutual respect for one another. As we know, they don't address each other by Christian name. And Mrs. Warboys is always a little bit she's all she's always on red alert when she's around Victor because she doesn't want to drop herself in it. But in this instance, it is Victor's fault. I get the impression it's his fault because the the bath I think has been run for 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 Mrs. Warboys. I did have a question though about why was there a bath ran when they're about to eat chips? Because well, Mrs. Meldrew was a bit cross about them being cold already. That's true. I think, but, um, I mean, that's it's just one a side point. It is. You could have a, sh- a shower would take a few minutes, then you have your dinner. But you're right, a bath is not there to be had for only a few minutes, is it? You can keep the chips warm, I suppose. And they did have to be warmed up. My nanny yeah. used to, they always used to do it. They used to get fish and chips and insist on, that, on putting it in the oven for another 10 minutes, even though they're perfectly warm. That's just one of the things they used to do. They this old gas oven, stick the paper in this gas oven, I think that's going to catch fire any minute now. Okay, so the next scene is very... <laughs> All the acting is done without any dialogue because if looks could kill, Mrs. Warboy sat there looking absolutely... Uh, well, what's the word? Um, violated, shall we say? Victor she looking... does look shell-shocked, doesn't she? Yeah, uncomfortable about attention. Very frosty. frosty, isn't it? Yeah. She can't look at Victor... Victor does have one concerned eye on her. I think it was right a right call for us to not to, to not see the actual aftermath. Always leave it to the imagination. We don't need to see I me, mean, Mrs. Warboys be, you know, used as a bath mat, basically. Always leave it to the imagination. I mean, it's a family sitcom as well, to be fair, despite all the darkness that goes on. But I, I do enjoy these occasional rare alternative angle shots of the dining room, living room, because again usually get the same kind of shots but every so often you do get an unusual angle and it's like a nice long shot with the living room in the background and now it's quite a smart and shrewd comedy timing now because because we've got this silence because you only see victor and mrs warboys at the table they just had this incident and then a few moments later in comes margaret placing mrs warboys chips and victor Melge's chips where she's sort of basically drops it in anger on Vic, on victor's um on Victor's dinner mat or on her dinner mat, I think, actually, come to think of it. But she the way cross really, really cross though, doesn't she? She's so she's so pissed off, isn't she? She's yeah, she's very angry. Looks and, good kill. Yeah, I think actually Mrs. Warboys has her chips already, sorry, I should say. It's she's just there to drop hers and, and, and Victor's off. Such despair and anger. It's like a testament to act to Annette's acting. The way she like drops that plate of food. It, is quite jocular and when margaret 
sits down after a few moments of more silence um and by way of defending himself victor just says well i haven't got eyes at the back of my head which confirms more than we we would know that how he settled into the bath would be sort of ass first lie back i think mark is channeling her anguish and despair on behalf of Jean because Jean continues to sit in silence, doesn't she? Like, she, like, like I said, like she's been violated, compromised. Margaret shows similar traits to this when she is jealous, actually, or insecure if, if Victor is around other women, and he will be around another woman later on, actually. Yeah. We are painted an ever so slightly more subtle image of what happened when Margaret says she'll be afraid to go to sleep in the bath ever again for fear <laughs> of what might suddenly land on her face. And Jean decides to end this basically tense situation and she wants them just to sort of leave it now she said the worst of it was banging her jaw on the tap and i did, i was just thinking how how she banged her jaw on the tap because she's led down is she at the tap end if you if she if someone sat on me and i for some stupid reason my head was at the tap end never have your head at the tap end by the way that's the basic rule that's one who one of bad thing isn't it <laughs> think they put your head there if you chris were to accidentally lying on top of me in the bath right great great image for all our listeners <laughs> it'll be shocking and i'd sit up and my head probably my head would bang on the tap but not my jaw i can only presume that she sort of slipped in the uh, maybe in the ensuing madness of sort of trying to get out of the bath and covered up i don't know and, and she thinks one of her crowns has come loose as well so she's done a bit of damage bless her victor does encourage jean to eat the chips so she she can't eat the meat pie and then suddenly she holds something in her hand that looks quite disturbing. And Victor and Margaret just not seeing it somehow at this stage. They're not really tuned into the fact she's holding. Is that a... Someone's finger. Oh God. It's a finger. It's a finger that we have we've already heard of this story in the stage play. That someone found a finger in the chips. That old lady found a finger in the chips. Talk about all the bad things that can happen. Mrs. Warboys has had someone sat on her in the bath and now an amputated finger in her chips. And it's been deep fried. Victor's quite... He's studying <laughs> this like quite hard, isn't he? Yeah. Because there's a bit of a pause, isn't there? And mm. I like how sort of like deadpan he is. It's been deep fried. <laughs> and yeah, like everyone else is sort of a bit shocked at what's going on and he's almost just like... Oh, it's... Yeah, it's not just the finger has been deep fried, and he, he doesn't make a big deal of it, does he? He doesn't look flustered or shook. No, it's just sort you, of really calm. And Mar- Margaret's obviously absolutely uh, well. She's in shock and, and horrified, as you would be. And Victor's just rooting around for some more, like just want to see if there's any more. <laughs> yeah. What the, are you the, doing, Victor? Yeah, there is a- echoes of the of the episode, the broken reflection, when um, he went to the Chinese, and when Victor was waiting, there was the pot of rice that customer brought back and it was moving on its own. And that sort of reminded me of that in a way. It's nothing to do with a finger, but it's still buying food from a takeaway where something's gone. Something is in your food that shouldn't be. Certainly not a finger. Margaret's yeah. quite certain if you put it in the thermos flask with ice, the hospital could do something. This is one of my favourite bits of the episode as well, actually, now. So when, when she tells him to go and get that thermos of ice and put it in there, and the way, the way Victor runs out into the kitchen... And you think he's just doing it, but then he comes back and he sort of says, <laughs> Like what? <laughs> oh, pick the ruddy noses. How would I know? Just get the thing out of this house. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. There's something about the way he does it. And uh, he is. Like, he's, the physical acting of it is just brilliant. He seems utterly useless, though, doesn't he, at this stage? 
But it's everything we saw in that the- in the theatre rehearsals now indicates we're watching things pan out in chronological order as per this. Or we're not watching in chronological order because this Katie, we, we haven't seen her with the Meldrews yet. She's, this is obviously, this is something that's happened in the past. If you think about it, because the stage play has happened and they're rehearsing the thing and the chips. And now we're seeing it happen. So we're obviously, yes, treat this as a flashback, I suppose. Yeah, we should mm. say as well, Mrs. Warboys has ran out for fresh air, hasn't she, by this point? She's sort of come over yes. all funny. Yeah, I think, I think I would as well, to be honest with you. I mean... That will yeah. put your buying. I mean, you would never go to that chip shop again. You might not go to any chip shop again. In fact, no, I feel so sorry. To. Feel so sorry for her. There was one thing I really enjoyed about this, which is going to make me sound really odd. You've had so many great people on your podcast talking about this this show, and I'm picking up on ridiculous stuff like this and doing it a disservice. But I loved Victor has a chair that is different to everyone else's. He's got armrests. Yeah, he's got armrests where no one else does. Oh, and I just I thought that was like I don't know oh. why. It really, it sort of like really reminded me of. Of that era, oh, sat yeah, at the head of the table with uh, with armrests when nobody else does, or it doesn't but, look like they do. Well, yeah, it's the angle, isn't it? Because you, you, ca- you can see Mrs. Warboys and Jean, so that's the same person, Mrs. Warboys and Margaret from afar. You can see Victor from behind, basically, and the side of him is profile. And you can see, like you yeah. say, you can see that maybe I'm wrong. I don't know, you just can't, but like you said, you can, see the, yeah, but you can see the chair that's not used hasn't got the arm armrest, so you're probably right, actually. No, I love it. I love any kind of little quote unquote pointless observation because it's. I just... think I do it though because it reminds me, it just reminds like it's just really warm in watching this. Like the, the table lamp in the background has the same sort of lampshade as my parents had at that time. It's yeah, that is very, I think that's why I pick up on stuff like this because it's just really like takes you back to your childhood or it does for me anyway because that's that what age I was when I watched it I think that's why I pick up on stuff like that and it's, it's that extra layer of enjoyment that I get from it I guess which is probably a bit odd yeah but and people don't have lampshades like that anymore do they I don't think well most people under 60 <laughs> and no. tablecloths they've got a tablecloth do you have a tablecloth in your house to just eat straight off the, the wooden table the only time we put a tablecloth on our table it's christmas like a nice christmasy red one yeah but yeah it's just these tiny little the set designers are great if you're listening to this episode and haven't listened to every other episode i've done before listen out for the richard drew episode tv um, art director tv set designer he's he was on the series uh four of one from the grave he's done in between us afterlife but he gives a really good insight into the life behind the camera shall we say Nighttime in the Meldrews, Victor's in bed, looking on like he's evaluating his life whilst Margaret walks in bewildered. All the kinds of things that people get up to, frantically polishing the top of their chest of drawers. When Victor asks, why are you going a bit mad this time of night with that? <laughs> she responds, well, because we, got that cl- we just remember we got that cleaner arriving tomorrow. Victor looks on, it's a bit of a brief pause, isn't it? It's like, well, surely that's why we have a cleaner. Why are you clean? And it's that sense of pride, isn't it? I think it's quite relatable because I think people do that, don't they? They do. I think it's, it's, all, it's all relatable, this, isn't it? But the, yeah. one of the reasons that Margaret is a bit frantic with the cleaning is this. She says there's something that makes her quite inadequate. Uh, clearly, she can't seem to keep her clothes on. Margaret does get like this in certain scenarios. In one foot in the Algarve and she she was having a bit of a moment on the beach where you know she there's sort of topless ladies around her and reading a magazine with about sex and relationships and feeling a little bit I think she was approaching sixty at the time her character was anyway so she's having a bit of a 
episode Tales of Terror in this series where Lindsay the blonde this is a very brief cameo by this this actress who is they're doing a stage play Victor doing a Mr. Sweeney's but taking part in Mr. Sweeney's um amateur stage play and this he's basically got a scene with this blonde so she does get a little bit a little bit jealous even though Victor and Margaret aren't that sort of couple who are sort of lust after one another then then those years have long since passed I think but yeah Victor is he's looking on amusement he 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 doesn't think that she's this cleaner walks around you know with her clothes off she just walk around in a bikini top Margaret's adamant it's a bra and we'll we will get to evaluate this later Chris yeah yes but she says she'd stick her life on it didn't she yeah because she says in a skimpy bra and he said that's a bikini top which I kind of find quite funny that Victor has that view that it's a bikini for some reason and then yeah. she says it's definitely a bra I'd stick my life on it and then he says they look the same what's the difference so as long as you've got someone to tuck your dusters yeah, um, yeah. And, subject, and he doesn't mean anything by that he literally means that he's not the sort of bloke to be smutty is he no no he's very li- literal in that sense isn't he it's quite i mean again the word meaningful but is victor's seems quite dejected doesn't he when does yeah lud there on his bed with his newspaper wide open yeah and he's he's pondering about life i think what is it all about and margaret does sort of make out you know well she makes the comment you know you're in a funny mood I think he excuses himself as being just tired after all the palaver, basically. And um, a quick peck on the cheek, and he turns over to sleep. Margaret looks on, seeing seeming put out whilst a bit of sorrowful music is played. Yeah, I was going to mention the music. She mentioned the music earlier, and it really sets things up, doesn't it? It gives you a sense of kind of what what's going on. Yeah, because we, we don't really... We're not to know why he's a little bit... I mean, it's not like he's depressed, but he's. I think he's just thinking, what is this all about? Where's my life going? He's in his sort of retirement years. He should be enjoying life. He should be happy. But he yeah. doesn't seem it. I don't, think he's a, I don't think he's a happy bloke. He's just forever stressed about civilization. But he mentions that he says it's one of those things we'll never know or something like that, doesn't he? And I'm not yeah. quite sure what he's, what he's referring to specifically there. Yeah, but it I, leaves me all sort of like, uh, I don't know, a bit... You get, I get the sense of like he's feeling a bit dejected and sort of elsewhere in his thoughts and that, but not quite mm. what. No, and but yeah, like it's, it's quite poignant. To it's use very. What you used earlier in terms of like knowing that this is the last series and that we're not many episodes away. It's sort of, I don't know. I look back at, it, I watch it. Maybe, maybe I put too much on these moments now, knowing that it's it's near the end, and I'm sort of thinking like, is he? Yeah, it might be just be Richard Wilson putting, putting all those energies into these final scenes, you know, because it's that's going to be it. Next day in the living room, dear Mrs. Warboys again. Well, we actually see the cleaning, don't we? Um, we know to be this Katie we saw from the first scene in the rehearsals at the, at the theatre. Building up a bit of a sweat. She's got like hot pants on and a sweater. One of my, <laughs> one, one, one of the, I was saying one of my favourite scenes, but I absolutely adore the anything, like I said, anything that involving a, a local article by the infamous Mimsy Berkowitz who's mentioned throughout the series and, and Jean sat next to Margaret reading out Dear Mimsy, I wonder if it's possible to reverse a circumcision <laughs> for the last 13 years 
My husband has kept his foreskin in a jar. <laughs> but to be honest, I'm not sure it would still fit. <laughs> Any guidance you can give us on this matter would be much appreciated. It's tragic, really, the things people write in about. Now, just picture... So, well, I don't think you want to picture someone's foreskin in a jar, but a reverse <laughs> circumcision is the sort of ludicrous article that might might be in Hello Magazine or Cosmopolitan, you know? When you just glance at those headlines or, the, or you know, my, my lover wants to keep his spare penis in a lunchbox or something, you know, that kind of stupid, unbelievable front page article headline. Yeah. And the other one she reads... I have developed a thick white coating on my tongue, which I'm worried may be dandruff. <laughs> and despite gargling twice a day with head and shoulders, the problem does not seem to go away. Who would gargle head and shoulders? A madman, probably. But if it saves a trip to the doctors, is it worth doing? I don't know. But they're just brilliant. I just love those articles. I think you could do a, a whole... Almost a, a spin-off... On Mimsy Berkowitz's articles, storytelling, just even if it has a radio play. Yeah, it's quite funny, isn't it? I quite enjoyed that scene. Miss Warboy's eating a yogurt. Because I read into every single moment in in Wolf in the Grave, and I don't know what her eating a yogurt is in relation to, other than she's just eating a yogurt. No, but she's obviously like very at home, I guess. Oh, she has a she has baths there. Yeah, you know, she's yeah, a exactly, Should yeah. have taken. Me. She is. She's part of the furniture. It is sad she isn't in that final episode to comfort Margaret. It's a bit of yeah. a strange choice, actually, because when you watch that final episode, you think Mrs. Warboys is like one of Margaret's best friends or oldest friends. So it's a shame that she wasn't there to sort of put an arm around her shoulder and, and comfort her. But that's yeah. for, that's for a conversation for another day. If that's water resistant. I'm a Dutchman. Well, exactly. <laughs> That's a great line, but, of course. We that's when we see Katie take off her top. And I'm 50-50 whether that's a bra or a bikini top, because first of all, because of the colour, it's got a purpley, fuchsia-y colour. And it just seems quite t- I mean, we I probably it, on reflection, could have had a, a female on this. I feel like I've had a female expert on, they could probably just verify that is a bra or that is a bikini top. I think <laughs> bikini tops, haven't they got like She's wearing, we could delve, delve into this topic probably more than we should. And our our partners are probably going to be a little bit, what the hell are you talking about? But I, yeah, I'm I think sure um, bikini uh, tops are more, the, the shoulder is exposed, but more of the back is covered and more of the cleavage is covered. So I feel like that is probably a bra. I, I'm going to pass. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I say, my, my solicitors have advised me not to speak. <laughs> like, I don't know, but I just thought it was quite funny that there doesn't seem to have been a conversation between Mrs. Melger and Mrs. Warboys. No. But Mrs. Warboys sort of says the same thing as, yeah. as Mrs. Melger. I don't know why. But it is quite strange that this lady is going around cleaning the house taking her top off. <laughs> well, they both do glance at her, don't they, like you said, and um, that's water-resistant and I'm a Dutchman. It is a sharp and amusing ending to that scene. And that's all it, all it is, really, before we're back into the bedroom. Uh, Victor, is, I think it's later on in the day, sat on the edge of the bed. Again, another rare angle shot of their bedroom, with like the bedroom wall and window. And he's on the phone to, I think it's to Royal Mail. We should have said earlier that there's a parcel to pick up in town. So he's on the phone about the delivery note, just trying to arrange to collect it, I think. And 
He's told he can collect the parcel before 6 p.m. And that can't be raw mail because he'd be lucky to be able to pick up a parcel before 11 o'clock these days. So raw mail used to be able to, used to get your post delivered at 7 in the morning. But those days, well, about 15 years ago, stopped delivering before breakfast, I think. Yeah. The phone rings again. It's, it's Enrico checking in. Katie walks in, still very much in a skimpy bra, searching for a missing component for the, the Hoover, I presume. And she gets down on her knees beside Victor. And he does take a sneaky look, doesn't he? Like, uh, <laughs> yeah, he does. That's not like Victor. I'm, I'm sure it's innocent because that's out very out of character. But she's on all fours next to him, trying to find whatever it is she's trying to find. Because to start with, I thought maybe he was like wondering, knowing his character, maybe wondering what she's up to. But it does, it does sort of well, at the same time come across like he's he's on a bit of a look, isn't a it? little bit of a slow. And then one of the lines that follows makes me feel like that's definitely confirmed. She talks about playing her partner and he said, oh, sensational job. But she says oh, he didn't really mean it because he just wants to get, get into bed with her, how he loved it. But then she says, oh, and men will say anything like that to, to get you into bed or whatever. Oh, yeah. I didn't, I didn't and then she, like that. And then she asks Victor. How's everything in this room? All right for you? Victor says, yes, you've done a sensational job. Yeah, he looks really the... awkward after saying it. And he's like, oh, I mean, yeah, no, no, it's, it's a good job. Yeah. And he does get, seem to get caught out as he's, he does. Cause when he's glancing over at her she's on the floor, he sort of double takes her, don't, don't he? And then she looks back and he sort of looks back again. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so he the little, looks, it is little looks. And then what he says, like saying sensational job, the exact same thing she said her partner said to try and did not pick up on that that's really uh, is interesting like you said he does ask katie how the play's going i mean little does he know she's writing a play about their lives you know and yeah uh, that's quite funny isn't it it's like slightly think of that like I'd, I'd love to write a sitcom based on my grandparents and i've thought about it before but they were alive at the time when i thought that i thought if i ever managed to write something down and it got commissioned and they say they watched it they'd be going you take the piss here yeah but also when you use their real names um they yeah. do say don't they write write what you know yeah, exactly. So, and Katie's writing what she did know. She's a she's a cleaner in the Meldrews house, and she's she knows them well enough to write a stage play about them. So God knows how long she's been cleaning there for. And, and why on earth they've got a cleaner, I don't know, because Margaret and Victor are quite physically able people, you know, in their sixties. They they're quite mobile. And Margaret's demonstrated how you know how she can clean and polish perfectly well. Yeah, I don't know because I always think of Victor as being sort of quite quite old-fashioned and principled. So that yeah. little scene where he's sort of um, getting caught up with Katie, this young yeah, person. He's, he's, and... he's not thinking, he's not He's not himself in this episode, though, is he? It's thinking about life and its purpose, I suppose, which is, becomes more apparent later, later, later into the episode. Yeah. But, but yeah, like you said, I think what I did write down is when Victor confirms that Katie did a sensational job, as he puts it regarding cleaning, it does for it does bring about a bit of audience laughter. So, do you think like what your your observation there is? Probably the audience probably did pick up on it. I didn't, because I, I wrote, "Why are they laughing at him saying you done a did a sensational job?" I thought they're just laughing because Richard Wilson can say anything now as Victor, and the audience laugh. But I wonder if they and you were far quicker than I in observing the fact that. He's just used the same word that her boyfriend uses to get his end away. Yeah. So just to note, um, we should probably say that Katie has got to dash out for a 2pm dentist appointment. Uh, bringing us into the living room, Victor is a little bit annoyed that Enrique has confirmed his self-invite for a, a chippy lunch and a large portion of haddock apparently he's got for him by way of probably saying thank you, which I was saying earlier, like, Gurnet is funnier than the word haddock, but it's, it is actually used in this, in this instance, haddock. The ladies... Uh, they're off out. That's Jean and Margaret. 
and Margaret passively says that they're not sitting around all morning watching Snow White get her kit off, which is quite a joyous one-liner. Um, you'd think she'd want to stay just to ensure Victor's head isn't turned. It sort of comes across a bit passive-aggressive towards Victor in a way as well, though. I, I don't know whether I'm misreading that. Well, maybe he has booked this cleaner. It's, it's, it's debate who's booked the cleaner. Like, yeah. I read a couple of this episode synopsis uh, for this this episode and it's claimed that Victor's booked this cleaner but I don't know if he has or not either way Margaret's not happy with well the fact she just takes a kit off but anyway the pain is building up in in Jean's shoulder that's sort of been that's that little side story which is not really a story at the moment is developing somewhat like this yeah like a build up to this crescendo of an outcome if you like and Margaret recalls Jean being allergic to injections I think and Novocaine makes her horribly sick. And the last time time she had an injection, she put her liver up. So, <laughs> yeah, it's not timed so well as Victor's trying to eat one of those large chocolate cookies, which I remember it was about the late 90s, early 2000s, when Sainsbury's started to sell these massive cookies. My mum used to buy those for us, and they're just quite large. It's quite like gooey. But anyway, yeah, Victor's not able to eat that delicious chocolate cookie. As I, as I look at this now... I want one. Margaret cleverly points out that she could go to another dentist regarding the um, the crown issue in her mouth. Clever in terms of the the, the plot and explaining Jean's unfamiliar surroundings later on, I suppose. Yeah, it sets everything up, doesn't it? But you don't really quite realise how much at the time. No, you don't. Again, uh, skipping forward a few moments, uh, we're at the dining room table once again, and Enrico, hand-bandaged up, offering Victor a chip. Victor's gone off chips, as he bluntly puts it. Enrico's played by, trying to pronounce this name, Arturo Venegas. Arturo Venegas? Venegas? That could be wrong. I'm not sure that's an Italian name. It seems South American to me. But he starred in Bridget Jones and Love Actually and filmed The Business and Poirot, Ruth Rendell. So he's been in quite a lot of British TV as well as a couple of films. It's a bit direct, isn't it, from Enrico? Hand-feeding Victor the chips. Yeah, he's putting it straight in his mouth, isn't he? Isn't yeah. Holding back by Enrico. These proud Italians. And as we record this, Chris, England, Italy on Sunday. Now, when this episode goes out, the final has been and gone. So God knows what the score would be. Come on, England. That's a side uh, <laughs> yeah, subject. It's the mood of this interaction and how I read the the two of them converting could be different if I've known the outcome of the result. Yeah, he's leaning in, isn't he? Feeding him. And I, I sort of start to wonder now as well, is he, if they'd gone for an Italian chip shop just to get an Italian with that passion to fill in with Maybe. a stereotype sort of. Yeah. I know, do you know what? Like with him cheating on his wife with his his mistress and the way he's feeding her and stuff feeding him sorry he's very proud of the quality of his fried spuds uh, it's good right like being suckled by angela ripon just melts in the mouth like melts in the mouth <laughs> obviously i had to look her up she's a now 76 year old journalist and she been... she's yeah she's on daytime tv isn't she now like um stopping people getting scammed and stuff is she daytime. yeah yeah the name rang a bell but i still had to look her up She'd have been in the mid fifties back in the when this was out, so she's definitely she'd have been around. But I I would have thought like so the reference melts in the mouth. I'd have thought they make Renwick would have made a comparison to that of maybe Kylie Minogue or Gail Porter because they were the the absolute you know the FHM type girls of that era. I can only guess it's because of the age of the two guys at the table, maybe. maybe yeah. yeah, that's probably. and it sort of harks back to their youth because I think yeah. she was quite quite popular amongst men in. In her younger years, if I understand. Enrico is quite witty, though. 
I don't think on purpose with that, that strong Italian accent. He does proclaim that whilst Victor returned his finger, other men would have flashed down the crapper. Yeah. Full of compliments for Victor, isn't he? Such as uh, his superior intellect. En- Enrique has a problem that he does need help with. Enrique tells us what we all should, what I say. Victor already knows, you know, the shenanigans, you know, behind the counter. Victor points out, yeah, I've heard. And Enrique takes this literally that he's heard and gathers that the noise would have perhaps travelled across the road. It's very possible. I make plenty of noise. He's, he's hatched up a rather a delusional plan, hasn't he? What, what's Enrico's plan? Yeah, because he's, he's obviously got um, Antonella, his wife, yeah. and Phyllis, his wife's best friend, who he got caught in the chip shop with. Enrico's ideas, Victor, this superior intellect, Victor, can help him out with this problem. And he's and I really find this quite interesting because Enrico says he's got a plan for Victor to choose between Antonella and Phyllis, but also that he got he said that to Antonella and Phyllis. Well, yeah, he's I mean, he's dodged the meat cleaving wife's outrage yet. Yeah. She's still willing to sit on the sidelines as she waits his decision on whether he'll stay with her or take refuge with the new lover, her friend. So, yeah, unless this is Enrique being, you know, as mentioned, delusional, I don't know. I mean, he, it's uh, an odd dynamic, isn't it, that they're both sort of there waiting for his choice and that he's going to Victor Meldrew for, for help. And I suppose, is it just basically an exaggerated Italian cultural romance thing where mad, passionate love is just a way of life every day and. If you're up for it, you're up for it. Doesn't matter if your loved one has gone elsewhere, you'll take them back as long as you choose them. I don't know. It's just a bit strange. It's strange. But I did like, I probably then started to overthink it because then I started thinking, is this also like a representative of, because we had um, Victor earlier in the episode sort of saying, saying that line that was the same line as his, as um, Katie's boyfriend would say to get her into bed. He's been a bit despondent. Yeah. Like, is it, is that what he's thinking about as well? And Possibly, I, possibly. I, I, yeah. I think I'm reading too much into that at that point, and it's nonsense. But no, this is it, what happens when I start making notes on an episode. Well, this is what we want on the podcast. We want this like unnecessary dissection of a any moment. I think my listeners like that. I like it. So more of the same, Christopher. That's that's wonderful. Now, Enrica makes comparisons to Victor choosing which lover to be with, with that of Judgment of Solomon. Again. Had to look that up. It's a biblical reference. The story from the Hebrew Bible in which Solomon ruled between two women, both claiming to be the mother of a child. So Enrique does show shows a photo of Antonella and Phyllis. Well, all he can do is express himself by way of excitement, I suppose. And ever diplomatic Victor does suggest to Enrique just write into the local paper, which you know allows Victor to make a swift exit because he needs to get to the post office by the kitchen with the with the plate of chips, obviously, in, in sight. Victor is allowed about three seconds of solace to repulse the chips he's had to endure. So basically, just to go back a bit, at the dinner table, he's suggested, yeah, right into the local paper. He's got a, he's got to go. He's got to place this part, uh, collect this parcel, should I say? Goes into the kitchen. He's got a few moments just to, yeah, he's absolutely repulsed at the chips he's just had to consume. Enrico, slightly irritating presence and what he he expects, you know, of Victor now. And goes, yeah, that's a great idea, basically. We'll um, we'll write into the paper. So this Mimsy Berkowitz, the infamous Mimsy. And um, he reads a headline that seems to inspire him to write in. And he does ask one last small favour, because since his hand is in a bandage, he obviously hinting at Victor writing this article. Now, something I didn't realise at the time, and I just, I, put, I didn't put the two together, but clearly he's asking Victor to write because one of his fingers is missing. But I used to think it's because he's Italian. His grasp of English might not be so good, but it's because he's lost a finger, isn't it? Nothing to do with his 
punctuation or grammar not being up to scratch. Yeah, because like, and this is how dense I am, I guess, or dim. When he, because he goes, oh, and he points to his cast, doesn't he? Because he's like, one last thing. Yeah. And, go, and I thought, is he getting fixed to sign his cast? I was like, what? <laughs> he should have done. That's the child in me. Um, well, but yeah, then he gets him to write it because he's, he's lost his finger. But that's the, like the cleverness of it's writing, isn't it? But I guess because there's all these little different streams of stuff coming together. Like, see, if, if he hadn't lost his finger, he yeah. wouldn't ask. And then, like, uh, it's just, I don't know, it's all, it's all these little bits that add up. You're talking about signing, signing of the cast. I think he broke his leg and that's in a cast. And in the episode, Who's Listening? I think someone had written on his cast, West Ham Wonkers which Mrs. Walpoys points out. Anyway, in the high street, somewhere in the high street, in uh, wherever the Meldrews live, we know we know it's in Christchurch, but I don't know what fictional town it could be in. Victor's seen carrying a huge box as he bumps into Katie. She just come out of a, like a hypnosis after an apparent dental appointment. So she's a bit spaced out, she says. Uh, not due to the anaesthetic, as Victor second guesses, but she speaks highly of this Taiwanese lady who can basically help to alleviate any pain before or after treatment. Again, setting us up for later on. But when asked, he doesn't know what's in this in this box, by the way. Katie sort of sarcastically says, oh, is it a pair of cufflinks? But no, he's a complete mystery. So what it's we, a big what, box, isn't it? It's really, really big. Massive. Absolutely Ma- massive. Yeah, massive box, yeah. It's obviously not that heavy because he can carry it. So up to this point, because we know Mrs. Warboys has of dodgy crown and she doesn't like injections and he's learned from this katie that he knows that katie's had an an appointment in town on this very day and she has hypnosis to treat certain pain i think that puts an idea in victor's head for later back in the living room margaret's seen hoovering or vacuuming should i say product placement for hoover there (laughs) on this podcast not sponsored the clean and quality output from Katie is apparently dubious as Victor places this large box on the coffee table. And Victor and Margaret look on briefly at this large parcel, a bit perplexed by the size of it, of course. Something nerdy I, I think I picked up on is Victor mentions of this handy alternative dentist for, and he says, you know who, referencing Mrs. Warboys. Oh, I tell you what I did find when I was out. A dentist that might be handy for you know who. Something I never read into, but is this is this to avoid him from referring to Mrs. Wallboys as Jean? Because he never refers to her as Jean. Is this a, just an excuse for the character to not use that name? Because if, if you're, he's never going to refer to Mrs. Wallboys to Margaret as Mrs. Wallboys. But in person, he's like her name is Mrs. Wallboys. But when she's not there, surely she's just Jean. But he, I just thought he just said for you know who like. She's like this, um, yeah, the notorious Mrs. Warboys as a you-know-who. I've not picked up on that, but yeah, I know what you mean. It's yeah, definitely it's like, says it in that way, doesn't it? It's, it's, it's yeah. that ongoing element of mutual moderate respect or resentment towards Mrs. Warboys. Yeah, but I think because of them, because of him, I keep re- referring to them as Mrs. Warboys and Mrs. Meldrew. Yeah. I find it hard, hard to call them Margaret and Jean. I, I don't yeah, know why. I, I'd flip between the two, to be honest with you. Victor describes the process of this alternative therapy that Katie was speaking to him about in town earlier as, as he's opening the box. We are treated to a, a Victor catchphrase, one that's not used an awful lot. What in the name of all that's holy? <laughs> and the, the item in the box is this large model fly. 
Margaret and Victor utterly flummoxed, stumped, you know, baffled. It's definitely dressed to Victor and Margaret, but there's no labels and there's no note, no letter, absolute mystery. And I was thinking it could be for someone at, so their address is 19 Riverbank. We know in, in a previous episode, because there's a similar address name across town called Rivers Bank. I was thinking, was it meant to go to Rivers Bank? But nevertheless, it's got their names on it. And whilst Margaret's frantically searching for more clues inside the box, whilst asking, you know, what could this be for? Victor, second guess is perhaps it's a free gift. And I love Margaret's response. A free gift. Just that amusing. <laughs> it's like an ex growling, but it's sort of stunned and bemused, sort of verifying a Victor's feeble attempt to explain why they've received this. Like a free gift. I put it on Twitter um, the other day. Like, who do you think sent this? You know, it guesses that the Grimway brothers, who are the pranksters across the road, who've previously, yeah, they played pranks on all the neighbor, all the neighborhood, could be Patrick. Because I think in I can't remember is it Starbound or Endgame, you know you know when you receive a so-called prize of a million pounds or a, you know or a sports car or this, Patrick in that episode was um, getting his own back at this advertising company and he he sent them a dead rat basically. He said in this box it's either ten thousand pounds, diamond earrings, or a dead rat, and he sent them a dead rat. And I'm thinking, I'm sure he surely he would send a, a model fly, but there's there's no explanation. Someone um someone guessed it could be Mr. Foskett, and Mr. Foskett is dead. So it couldn't have been him. But it's pretty weird, isn't it? It's big. This fly is big. Well, all that's on the fly is a sticker that says best before January 2001 to suggest it's an edible thing they can consume. And it yeah. just adds to that surrealism for the Meldries. Like that would be very odd. Someone's gone to the effort to post because that whoever sent that, you know, they've had to package that. They've had to take that to the the depot. What is the meaning behind that? Yeah, because it's got to cost like quite a lot of money, a for the fly and b for the postage. And it's a fly. It's not like it's a blooming bumblebee or a, I don't know, giraffe. It's like it's the it's most people don't appreciate a fly, do they? Let's face it. No. Some would say it's futile. Anyway, yeah. okay. By the way, do you recognise that Katie being in Coronation Street? I used to watch Coronation Street no, in the 90s. No, I never really watched it. So no, 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 me. I was watching, uh, I was watching football. And, uh, I was watching Andy McNabb. <laughs> in the next scene in the Meldrew kitchen, Mrs. Warboys has t- turned up via the back kitchen door as ever. People who are familiar with the Meldrews will, will just rock up and let themselves in through the back door. And she sees Victor in his dressing gown, possibly adding to some paranoia of suggestible tension between the pair given what's happened in the earlier you know he's only in a dressing gown but to a certain generation that could be a bit saucy if it's after 10 o'clock adding to all of this into into a subconscious she offers to wait in the car though and she's a bit too early i think she's going to be given a lift into to town to this um this alternative dentist shall we say victor is very very polite and very forthcoming very accommodating insists you know come and wait inside and uh I'll, you know I'll, I'll just go and get ready now quite out of character for victor to be honest you, especially around gene because he usually hasn't got time for her yeah gene uh, speaks to margaret uh she says she's a bit unsure about the hypnotherapy what if they can't bring me out of a trance i could turn into a vegetable doing a strip tease every time anyone claps their hands <laughs> <laughs> the L gene, like that is quite a specific 
anxiety you've got there and it's one that i don't um associate mrs warboys worrying about anything sexual and then there she's worrying about the idea of doing a striptease yeah it's it's a bit of a weird one it did it, it did make me laugh though but then she instantly goes back to sort of her more innocent self by commenting on the fly doesn't she yeah well that's because she sort of says oh that looks realistic yeah it could always be could always be real yeah, Jean said which is old, funny because it's huge. Jean said her old dentist has endorsed this alternative treatment and, and sort of given a, a copy of her x-ray to take along, which is very nice of him or her, whoever it may be. And uh, Jean sees Margaret holding a, like a letter or like an envelope, thinking it's bad news. And it's, it's a letter addressed to this Mimsy Berkowitz. And Jean sees that it was actually in Victor's handwriting. You only write to, you're only right to this Mimsy if, if you've got um, a personal problem at home. So it's a bit concerning for Margaret and for Jean. You know, she's very nosy. She likes to know what's going on. Well, she jumps to a conclusion about Victor. My God, you think he's got some girl into trouble? (laughs) Which Margaret rejects this notion straight away. In true Jean fashion, she just attempts to open it. Margaret vehemently against this action and feels like if Victor's got a problem, you know, and he can't share it with her, then that's, you know, that's his problem. Storms off slamming that. You know, the letter on the mantelpiece on her way to the kitchen. Of course, Mrs. Warboy's notoriously nosy and likes to gossip, mischievously looks down at the um, the letter and she just spots an opportunity to conveniently offer to post it. We know what That's she's going to do. We know what yeah. she's going to do. Yeah, it's obvious. There's a line in there that I liked from her as well, though, that she's like, when um, she realised Victor was sending it in, of Victor sending it in, she said, oh, that smacks of dishonesty. Let's see if I can open it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Mrs. Mrs. Warboy's Jean, um, she's in the car, keeping a close eye out, just in case she's spotted. She starts to read the letter. Dear Mimsy, I have the most terrible problem and need your advice. Recently, I have developed an insane passion for my wife's best friend. <laughs> I realise I totally wish. Ever since we shared an intimate moment together a few nights ago, I cannot stop thinking about her. Oh, God. So she could barely get to the end of that first paragraph before, obviously, Victor interrupts and gets in the car, and she's instantly and probably understandably thinks the letter's referring to her as, you know, the wife's friend. To be fair, I think that's an easy mistake to make. I, I don't know if there's a little plot hole potentially assume the letter is signed Enrico either you think it was a false name to protect Victor's identity so maybe she's thinking oh he's changed his name or it wasn't signed for because you can write into a paper not signed from who it's from can't you so yeah she obviously didn't get to read the whole letter completely but yeah yeah, like you say she didn't read it or did she but there's a lot of parallels between what she has read and their situation well, of course, you know, in her mind, he's shared a bath with her and he was being overly nice to her in the kitchen previously. In and, his you know, dressing game, even though gown. she said, oh, I thought we agreed to 10 o'clock. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, in her mind, I guess she's sort of starting to think like, what? Is that deliberate? Yeah. And, it's, and it, she's connecting the dots in her mind that bloody hell, he fancies me. Even though he can never address me by a Christian name. Not that. That would make any difference, of course. So Victor is acting more accommodating than ever. Like I mentioned earlier, you know, he puts a seatbelt on and obviously it makes sense. He's got a dodgy shoulder and a rather outdated touch of affection from Victor as he taps her thigh in reassurance for the impending dental appointment. It's one of those things that you just don't do now um, unless you know someone very well. He does know her very well, to be fair. Clearly, she's um, very uncomfortable. Her head's all over the place right now. Yeah, because she's just read that letter. Then he's 
put her seatbelt on for her, leaning right across, touched her leg. Yeah. She must be thinking, and especially she's already worried about the hypnotism and being taken advan- advantage of. Yeah. So, like, she must be thinking, oh, my gosh, what's what's going on? Where's this going to go? Exactly, yeah. it's. I, I can totally understand. I, I think it's fair game that Mrs. Wallboys thinks that's that's happened. But all the same, though, and, and I don't expect her to again to connect the dots but she knows she knows about Enrico and his lover and wife that all that escapade that went on earlier so would she at all stop to think oh maybe this Enrico who I know has been to Victor's house perhaps he's written this and asked Victor to help because of the she knows the finger I mean, it's far it's probably very far-fetched for her to, to make that connection to be fair but it's clever and it works very well yeah Victor and Jean are sat in the waiting room now, and you can hear various sounds coming from the treatment rooms as a presumed dental nurse calls Mrs. Warboys. And the accent thing is funny. Like when, when they're speaking of Mrs. Warboys' the name, a bit like in One Foot in the Algarve. Mrs. Warboys, Mrs. It's just funny when it's a different accent pronouncing her name. I don't know why it's funny. It just make, it just made me chuckle. Mrs. Warboys. And the nurse is clarifying something about a crown. You know, are her words and the nurse takes the x-ray and it all looks very legit like to be fair like mrs warboys does have a bad crown and the this dental nurse is saying oh there's something about a crown is it and she takes the x-ray and looks up to it and Jean summarizing all that pain she's been receiving in her mouth as well as her shoulder and then suddenly the nurse is putting Jean into a trance you know perfectly normal because Jean knows she's there to have alternative therapy to get through the pain i wonder if this sort of thing's ever happened i don't know only one foot in the grave world obviously yeah it's it's just I thought you froze then because I looked at you. you No, sorry. I was just like, I've got it in the background so I can, you know, like (laughs) you you said about doing, I'm just watching it and getting lost in it and just sort of trying to pick up. But there's nothing to really give away to you, anything, you know, of what's going on. It just all seems, and you're kind of there watching, thinking like, I'm kind of drawn in by this idea of hypnotism. I think hypnotism back then was a quite a like quirky thing thing as well, wasn't it? Because there's like Yuri Geller on the TV and stuff, all these weird things and, I remember hypnotism being something I was quite sort of aware of and thought was really kind of prevalent, I guess. Yeah, I Not just, that it was. I'm just convinced that it would never work on me. Like Darren Brown, if you've seen his stuff, he, it can get people under his spell in three seconds. I'm just not convinced he'd be able to do that on me. He probably could, but I just think, how is that possible? I don't think it can be. Um, uh, I think I just... also um, when you see Kater come out of this place uh, in an early scene in town, you do in the background see the sign and the name to this it's one of those buildings where there's about each floor's got a different business so to be fair like mrs Wallboys wouldn't really pay attention to all three or four of the business names on the plaque on the side of the wall so it's like it feels like a very legit cock-up yeah it would it could it could happen up to this point anyway especially perhaps of a certain age and you're not really focused and you're just being led by a friend who's set this up for you you know yeah so Jean's put into a trance as we go back into the Meldrew kitchen. Katie is cleaning the kitchen floor whilst recognising it's already quite clean and again rhetorically asking if she's to Margaret says, are you sure you haven't been cleaning this floor? Margaret's washing up, isn't she? And she lets out this brief, playful, forced laugh. <laughs> oh, by the way, thanks for putting us on to that dentist of yours. This forced yeah. laugh, which I found funny and quickly changing the topic, thanking Katie for the, the recommendation of the hypnotherapy dentist. And I think it's quite fantastic that Margaret can let out that 
frustrated false laugh because she is like she isn't happy with this katie but she's sort of trying to balance her emotions like okay this this young woman who seems quite sexual is helping out a friend here so that's good but katie acknowledges sorry this parent this therapist is great but she's, she's not her dentist which margaret a bit confused now before she can even finish her question <laughs> katie takes her top off again that she to reveal a tattoo it's like a snake surrounding a rose and by the way i looked up snake and rose tattoo and it's meant to mean a symbol of purity and beauty yeah the rose is a symbol of purity and beauty when the snake coils around a rose it corrupts this perfection and eternity with its evil nature a snake wrapped around a rose is blinding passion temptation that led to corruption so margaret's absolutely horrified she's realized that katie has this new because probably only just thought of this in this moment the reason why renwick's written this cleaner to be you know half nude so we can see her tattoo obviously i suppose um unless yeah. she has to have one on her face um it makes sense so she's got this brand new tattoo and margaret's thinking therapy she's connected the dots phrase i've used about four times in this episode quite quickly oh my god mrs warpoise the last person you expect to have a tattoo is going to have a tattoo it's quite a funny one isn't it it's quite a strange place for a tattoo in a way yeah, it's sort of, um, but like what you're saying about the meaning of the tattoo is quite interesting as well. With my very their theory of like the corruption of Richard. Yeah, that's Not right. Richard, yeah, like using his real name now, but like I'm Victor. Yeah, like I don't know. I never would have thought of looking up the the meaning of the tattoo. This oh, you've you've got to on a podcast, definitely. Yeah, is it like so? How deliberate is it? I'm gonna I'm gonna spend my life's work now working out. <laughs> I I just presume Renwick every fine detail is it, it, there's a good reason for pretty much every line of dialogue and every thing we see is 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 purposefully written now we know it to be a tattoo parlor the re- a receptionist receives a call and calls for victor so margaret's got on the blower straight away victor learns the news and is equally as flabbergasted as margaret and he calls through uh, victor's called through sorry to collect mrs Warboys. as a bit of a big a big reveal the x-ray it's an x-ray <laughs> tattoo of her crown of her gob basically on when, her shoulder there's a bit there as well where that you where they show when um victor's on the phone that that is revealed they're all all the people sat in the waiting room are in vests with loads yeah. of tattoos as well aren't they yeah i mean i don't suppose you you wouldn't um make the connection i suppose would you, you just think i'm in a dentist with oh there's a few people with tattoos and and you can obviously yeah. hear drilling as well which obviously sounds just like you know a, ta- a tattoo pen or whatever it's called versus a dentist's um drill yeah it does sound like the same, it, apparently. It? yeah yeah but this is the mother mother of all cock-ups and perhaps the one time victor's got his own back and all the times gene has caused him untold stress not that he's done on purpose of course the best example of stress that mrs warboys has brought onto victor would be in one foot in the algarve when you know he thought she'd fallen from the clifftops or maybe when she the time she brought him some black pudding and it made him ill when he thought he had bowel cancer basically um, anyway the nurse tries to bring gene round mrs warboys <laughs> but she's distracted by a telephone now the first question i had why couldn't the receptionist answer that, that telephone and secondly yeah. i think in the priority should be the patient you bring them back around to full consciousness should be your priority that said the phone was ringing in a different rooms so and i guess it's i guess it's just her her own mobile phone it sounded like an old school 
mobile. Victor, yeah, Victor, deeply concerned. He's quite curious as to you know, take another look at the final piece of ink work. It's a um, hideous tattoo, isn't it? Like, I don't it, think we can understate how bad it is. Obviously, he rolls up the shoulder sleeve, just have another look, puts his glasses on, and Jean does snap out of this hypnosis, and everything is all a bit untimely, and she spots Victor leering over her, and this only enhances her paranoia further. You know, it's another example that, God, he really does fancy me, and he's literally trying to eye-goggle me up right up close. And he scarpers as he wakes for her in the car, and he's, God, he's got to break this news to her eventually. Nothing screams out. He hides it well, doesn't he? Because she's got the files that look the same as the file Mrs. Warboys has brought, yeah. and like it all leads you in, and then just that reveal. But yeah, it's quite clever as well, though, isn't it? Like just the way he's looking at her tattoo, and then her snapping out of it, and just reinforcing her her view that he's some kind of like not lech, but like I don't know. He's, he's yeah, he's, he's it's it's an interest in her. It's unfortunate for it's so unfortunate because of the letter that is just left on the side. Anyway, yeah, it's probably daft. In fact, it is daft for Victor to leave a, an envelope titled to, um, or addressed to Mimsy Berkowitz, because, you know, Margaret knows who Mimsy Berkowitz is, and she knows that you write to her if you've got personal problems. So he's a bit daft to leave that on the side. You know, yeah. you, write, you know, you could have given that to Enrico to post. I don't know why Victor has to post it as well. That's the other thing. That's a very good point, actually. I hadn't thought of that. But it is Enrico's descent, isn't it? Yeah, it's, I mean, he's got yeah. his other hand to post, you know. <laughs> yeah. Do you know? Back in the in the kitchen at the Maldives, they're they're doing a bit of food prep on the table, and um, Margaret's a bit confused as to why Jean left abruptly. So they're commenting on her peculiar behaviour on that day, and um, Victor said she she used the excuse of needing to head to the post office and that she'd be back to collect her car via the bus. So she didn't even want to go home with Victor. Because, you know, in her mind, he's been a bit of a weird creep. Yeah, she's acting very strange, isn't she? Which probably it just makes no sense for the Meldries, does it? Yeah. That she's been so peculiar. They've they've gone out of their way to try and be nice. She doesn't yeah. even know about the tattoo yet, does she? It's not I like know. she's gone all tattooed and, and angry. She's just sort of behaving yeah. strange. I mean, Victor, yeah, Victor reflects on, on the, the strange looks he's been receiving all day from her and Margaret enforces that Victor you must tell her everything when you next see her whilst brandishing her cutting knife we talk about Enrico and his wife with a meat cleaver Margaret's now got the chopping knife pointed in this direction so the blokes are in for it in this episode that's for sure yeah so yeah, Margaret says you've got some things up in your time but this one takes the absolute biscuit and I've got to take issue here I mean when Victor saw Katie outside what he thought was the tattoo parlor Katie didn't think to clarify that she just had a tattoo when he clearly asked if she you know made it on time for a dental appointment yeah I think that was the right because I thought about that but then she sort of says oh sorry I'm a bit out of it a bit spaced from from my hypnosis yeah I guess she doesn't really clock what he said yeah because you know he's clearly said I take it you made it to your appointment then the previous scene was i got a dentist appointment now do you think she did have a dentist appointment or she was just covering up to she didn't she felt a bit embarrassed that she's getting a tattoo but then again she's showing it off isn't she by taking the top off i don't know she's obviously yeah, she's had it. she's obviously had a dentist appointment and a, then the tattoo appointment later on but yeah and then also i guess we're saying it's is it the next day maybe yeah because mr warboys came around at 10 o'clock the next day yeah yeah, but Katie, the cleaner, is then the next day wearing her like her tattoo is half hidden, isn't it, by her bra slash bikini, yeah. depending whether you listen to Victor or or the ladies yeah. in this episode. Tattoos are normally quite sore, aren't they? Straight yeah. away, and this is a color tattoo. It looks sort of filled in and stuff. Yeah, you're supposed to put but, like, like she's, that. It's quite convenient that she can 
just get it out. But that's true, yeah. Unless that's that's by the by, I guess it's the, the well, license yeah. of writing, isn't it? But... It's the license, and I don't know what point in time you had to wear one of those tattoo covers. But I presume, presumably, yeah. for, for further back than the year two thousand. She's just well hard, isn't she? Well hard, double hard. But yeah, she yeah. he was he definitely asked her. You know, you made your appointment then, and shouldn't yeah yeah. Oh, sorry, I'm just a bit spaced out. So she yeah. yeah. Anyway, just. It's all part of the writing and the the misdirection, you know, for the characters yeah. and stuff. But yeah, when when I, I had to go back to that scene, you can see um, the name of the Taiwanese um, tattoo, whatever it was called. So she definitely it's very, it's very good to keep it consistent. Like that's definitely where she went. And I, you know, Renwick's gone to the trouble of making sure there's a sign in the background, barely visible, but just to keep it all legit. Out of nowhere, there's like a power cut. Like a, a blown bulb, I think they think it is. And Victor presumes a, a trip switch needs resetting, which actually the following episode is called Threatening Weather. Threatening Weather. The following episode is called Threatening Weather, where they are spending a whole scene in the living room with a power cut in the uh, height of the summer. Again, quite interesting that they their electric's gone and it's the next episode, the whole episode is based on them having a power cut. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I lo- you know, people say a lot about how following episodes reference what happened in the past, but I like the fact this is setting up the next episode in a way. Yeah. So Margaret goes off to reset the trip. Conveniently, it's Margaret who goes off to set the trip as Jean walks in through the back. She's obviously a little bit freaked out. She walks into Victor in the dark and she's in the right panic, isn't she? Victor's obviously trying to calm her down and he's gearing himself up basically to break the tattoo news. I thought it might be an idea if we just sat down and had a little chat. Oh, my God! What's that horrible rubbery thing? You, you can see the silhouette of Victor and Jean, can't you? He's just sort of stood there, like, you know, he's not really moving at this point. Jean is trying her best to sort of get out of the way, but he's, he's, I don't think he's helping himself by sort of, presumably, with the best one in the world, manhandling her, just trying to steady her in the dark. And she is losing her... I'll say losing her shit, but that's not the podcast to use that phrase. She's losing <laughs> her mind now, isn't she? She's becoming more and more sort of um, animated, I guess, isn't she? Yeah. This ongoing commotion in the dark. Yeah, commotion's the word. She's getting quite irrational, crazy. Now she thinks she's being attacked. Yeah, because she, he's trying to calm her down, but not knowing what she's thinking. She's thinking he's grabbing her because... And has, has he just left the light off on purpose, you know? Yeah, this is it. She looks like some nighttime attack. And of course, like I said, conveniently, Margaret's not in the room. And she, yeah. she sounds like, what's that horrible rubbery thing? <laughs> and, you know, asking Mr. Meldry to keep away from her. What must they think? She's going a bit crazy. And the light switches on and there's a great reveal of what's happened in the dark. And it's that <laughs> infamous image of Jean clutching onto the door, Victor looking on confused and then there's a huge courgette wedged between the door i don't know why that courgette is stuck between the door what i presumed because i was really confused and i probably thought about this too much and for too long but i presume that maybe she felt it on the table or something thought it was mr meldrew's little meldrew (laughs) for better phrase i don't know had it in her hand like and then just shut it in the door herself because she stood like holding on to the door, isn't she? Because then she opens it and it falls out. Yeah, I don't know why. I mean, open to suggestions, but... Because she says, oh, what's that rubbery rubbery thing? thing. So um, am I right in saying she thinks it is like a dildo or something something sexual? Or does 
does he have it? I need to rewind. What's he cutting when the light goes out? Is he cutting courgette? Well, they, yeah, that's. I mean, that's the whole purpose. They obviously have food prepping, aren't they, on, on the lunch yeah. table? So it because they weren't so, prepping food, it would be random. But we, as the audience, can see there's clearly vegetables lying around the table, so it makes sense. But why would she pick up and go? What's this? Maybe uh, he had it in his hand. Or maybe then, actually, as he's going closer to her, yeah. she thinks it's his. Yeah, little Maldry, and then grabs it and shuts it in the door because he's yeah he is holding it is he's starting to cut it as the lights go out. Well, and uh, so I, I reckon that's what it is. He's holding it as she comes in. In she, fact, I can see him holding it in the dark now. Yeah, and she grabs it and goes, oh, "I'm taking it off you." And then again, why? You'd, I'm not quite sure he'd wedge it between the door, but it's 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 all, it's all out of panic, I suppose, isn't it? And um, yeah, I guess because he's holding on to it, she doesn't know it's not. She doesn't know it's a courgette, does she? She's she's startled and panicked, and and I kind of want to. I think I need some uh, sorrowful music as I say this. But Gene Warboys, star of eighteen episodes of One from the Grave, startled and panicked, exits the door of the Meldrews, who look on in confusion and bewilderment. And again, another unusual angle, one we've never seen before, where where Victor and Margaret disturbed, just where the fridge freezer the wall behind that the courgette obviously fall, falls to the floor as the the door is sort of not closed but it's um it's almost closed yeah, that's it's quite funny victor if you look carefully looks like that courgette falling to the floor and they're just like yeah what's she is just being strange and yeah dory mantle what a, a, a superstar i think without the side characters in in comedies like one in the grave only falls I, the comedy, the, the, the sitcom itself isn't as entertaining. I mean, just to have one or two characters in the lead, uh, playing a lead role, obviously, it's funny, but when you've got your Mr. Swainies and Mrs. Warboys, or in Falls and Horses, you get your Triggers, Boises, it just adds that extra, extra comedy value, I think. It really cements its place in comedy history with the likes of Mrs. Warboys as a character. I suppose her finest moment would have been one for the Algarve because she's, you know, she was the lead role. You know, her credit comes up first before Richard Wilson and Annette Crosby as well. So yeah, yeah. that is it is sad. We, again, at the start of the episode, we said we said like that is unfortunate <laughs> that her character is leaving on that note. Presumably, it is that, a shame, isn't it, for her to be storming out after shoving a courgette in a door and. But what we out. what we have to realise is, you know, in in their world, I'm sure Jean would have got hold of Margaret or vice versa, explain the tattoo away, and explain. Well, would the letter to Mimsy Berkowitz ever been explained? She'd have had to brought it up to to um, Jean, wouldn't she? She'd have to say, "Look, I have to say this to you, Margaret. Victor's written this letter about me," and then. Presuming that conversation's happened, then Victor could explain and Enrico would back up. But yeah, you know, I like to have seen Mrs. Warboys in that final episode purely because it would make sense for her character to be with um to be with Margaret, who would have been who would be in mourning of of her husband. But there you go. Yeah, you would have thought they'd bury the hatchet or do like whatever it is. I don't know, but yeah, you would have thought she she should be there written into it yeah 
Well, it's all, it's almost, you know, it's a farewell to Mrs. Warboys, Mrs. Um, Doreen Mantle, who's kind enough to come on the podcast, enjoyed speaking about her time on, on um, the show. So if you haven't listened to it already, please take a, take a listen. And if you've already listened to it, maybe listen to it again. Bump up my numbers, get family and friends to listen to it. Yeah, I need all the help I can get. No, honestly, <laughs> it's a very good it, listen. I can endorse it. Thank you very much, Christopher. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I, for a second, I thought, oh, we've finished the show, but we've, of course, got a couple more scenes. We've got Meldrew bedroom at night time. Margaret opens up with... You forget the feeling. You just like to go to sleep and not wake up the next morning. Every night. <laughs> We'd have to worry then. We'd have to keep trying to make sense of it all. The mindset of the Meldrews is quite, quite depressing, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, everything they've been through. Victor begins a monologue, and it's possibly his most spiritual he's ever been in. He reflects on life. You know, he's, speaking, he's trying to make sense of it all, and he, all the while he's got this model fly on his on his lap whilst in bed. He gives the example of like hospitals you know, from from the other night. He says he re- he references hospital like from the other night because I think in the episode Tales of Terror he was and well possibly unwell and he, he you know he was he thought he might have had something untoward going on in his bowel his bowel he area there with them with the finger didn't he as well and the finger yeah i suppose it's probably what it's probably that is what he's referencing as well but he, he just points out you know you've got birth death and all the misery in between yeah. and that's like hospital it's like a good metaphor i suppose to, to use like that's why a lot of people just don't like hospitals who does I yeah. mean, you, you've got you're not going there to, to have a party are you but what you know he says all our lives are just a temporary blip in the long meaningless void of eternity and we'll never know where we come from or what we're doing here all while all while staring at this mystery of the model fly i have become more and more intrigued by the fly every time i look at it yeah and what is um, he got in his bed with him when he's talking like that i don't know margaret on the back of what victor said you know, when, when he sort of says, you know, why, you know, we never make sense of, you know, our lives. You never know where we come from or what we're doing here. And she says, or why a grown woman would jam a courgette in the door. So, you know, they're, they're obviously going, that was a strange episode. What was going on? She sort of led down sort of back to Victor and she says, it's not as if she'd mistake it as something else. And she stops in her tracks. The, she sort of pauses, doesn't she? And the penny drops. And she, I think she assumed this is why, Mrs. Warboys is running scared, but does that mean that's normal behaviour for Jean, given she was acting weird? You know, she's dashing out to the post office after leaving that tattoo place, and I don't think Margaret would have linked all of that to this Mimsy Berkowitz letter, would she? I don't know how much... No, how much Margaret? Yeah, I think Margaret's making that assumption that Mrs. Warboys is freaked out because she thought Victor was trying to attack her. But all, all, all because of the courgette, which is a suggestible vegetable, I guess. I don't know how much Margaret is letting on that. Sh- what she knows there, all she knows is Jean's been tattooed. She's making some sort of connection with the courgette and sexual, you know, dominance from Victor in that regard. The bat, you know, the bath incident earlier. But she doesn't know about the letter to Mimsy, does she? So, no, I don't maybe know. it's just the bath scene and. She just says, doesn't she, what could she mistake it for? And then great bit of acting as well. The way the, the camera pans in on her or zooms in. They, they, they zoom in. She's she, 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 no. Yeah, but, but 
But what's she thinking? She's all she's going is, oh my god, mm. she thinks it's Victor's penis. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I I don't think that reaction would be what I'd expect of Margaret because she doesn't know still the background to what's going on, does she? It's just she. Uh, I would have thought her reaction would be, oh no, she doesn't think it's a it's penis, does she? But then she just brush off as like, oh, that's just Jean being silly. She she she's been hypnotized today. Maybe it's because of that. It just feels like. Margaret's reaction was was one of oh my god it all makes sense now the letter the bathtub the um you know Victor yeah. taking a so you just think I don't know if she knew anything about this anyway not worth dwelling on because the scene ends as, as Margaret is sort of wincing at that possible misunderstanding straight into an aerial moving shot of I think it's Brighton Pier as the as the prior audience laughter track from Margaret's realization of what Jean might have got confused at or you know scared of that laughter is sort of continued into this aerial shot of brighton pier and it seems that there's a theater there's a packed house at this theater watching the katie's play and the scene is being acted out by this imposter victor and imposter margaret and it's a much larger courgette sticking between the door and it's more pantomime like as this, this margaret imposter called ruth is Sort of breaking the fourth wall in her performance as she makes a remark about the courgette. What the hell did you think he was trying to do? And with a thing like that, who do you think I married to champion the wonder horse? <laughs> Make it a spring onion, we'd be getting closer to the mark. <laughs> Which is a bit of fun, isn't it? Katie and her mean and sort of boorish boyfriend Mitch are looking on from behind the set and it seems like, they, it seems like they're being shot for the audience, isn't it? But yeah, if I was an audience member, I'd clearly see them watching on. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> very much does. like Anton Deck on X Factor rooms. Yeah, it is. She looks at she looks at him as a Katie that is looks at him as to say, like you see, it is funny. He's still not convinced though, despite the audience finding it funny. Look, we're on the end of a pier. They're not gonna be the most demanding house in the world. They're laughing. But the laughter is meaningless. You put this in front of people who think they're gonna ask too many questions. Like, what the hell was the deal with that giant fly? You can't just set up something like that and then never explain it. But they never did explain it. It just became like this total unsolved mystery, which is what I love about it. I think his scepticism is, you know, the laughs is meaningless. They're on the end of a pier, so, you know, they're hardly the most demanding. So he's a bit of a pompous git as, as well, isn't he? He's a bit of a... He's quite rude. He's across horrible, doesn't he? And she comes across, like, desperate to sort of seek it or get his approval of the play. Yeah, it just seems horrible and sort of very disparaging of what she's done. The, the pompous remarks don't stop there when he speaks about putting this kind of show in front of an audience that thinks and asks too many questions. A bit like this pod, as post we're asking too many questions. Like, what was the deal with the giant fly? Mitch, you know, Mitch thinks it should be explained, but Katie enjoys the fact that it's a complete mystery. I suppose I do love that. I love the idea that it's a complete mystery. If we go back to um, Starbound, I'm going to name drop here. Speaking to David Renwick. And he and I agreed that we we like the idea that we don't know where Mr. Sweeney's mother absconded to, because the idea is she was taken by aliens, or so she says, to one of Jupiter's five moons or something. In reality, she probably just went down the road and took shelter at someone's house for a bit. I like the idea that we don't know who sent the fly, and I like having the discussions about who sent the fly or who or why would they send the fly more than anything never mind who but why but yeah katie does enjoy the fact it's a complete mystery and i just want to say like shut up mitch like you know you've just such a why is she dating this guy she's probably dating this guy so she the irony the irony is katie's thinking oh he's only saying my play is 
sensational because he's into one thing. Yep, yeah, she's probably fancies him because she can get a, a play commissioned. So they're yeah. both on the same kind of. They're both using each other, really, aren't they? I it's a bit, yeah, but I can't ever see him saying it's sensational based on what we've seen of it's, him saying to it. Because he's totally agree. Horrid. Yeah, he, he has not. He's he's not been close to saying it's. He's he's acknowledged that it's funny. I think did he say it's funny? But we're on the end of a pier. You know, people they're obviously drunk. They're on the coast and they don't really know what they're watching. It's, it's very classist. He's upper class and he's looking at these people, the working class um, theatre goers, um, basically watching a pantomime. So his closing speech to Katie, I've got to say, is quite clever, I think. Sorry, Katie. There's some interesting stuff here, but bottom line, the writing has to be convincing. And end of the day, I'm afraid for me, that's the biggest single problem. I don't believe it. <laughs> His sense of irony, he contradicts his opinions on the show by way of saying the fact it's not convincing is the biggest single problem. I don't believe it. And I just think that line at the end, what a clever way to close the episode. And I don't know if Katie's heard Victor use that catchphrase, I don't believe it. It is brilliant. I just love that closing speech. That He, he's, he does clarify why he doesn't like it. And it, it probably does go back to the idea that some critics like to have or no, not just critics, but TV viewers like to have stories explained and they like well-rounded stories. They like things, things to go full circle or they like that people like to have an explanation, but sometimes it's good to not have one. So I, I quite like this angle that Renwick's gone with. It's just so ironic that he ends with that catchphrase because what all he's done is verify that there is a victim elder out there. Just by using yeah. that catchphrase alone, you know. I thought it was wonderful. Like, a, just a brilliant ending, really, wasn't it? Very clever. Yeah. And sort of, like, it just closes off a lot of the things that he sort of brought up throughout the episode. Vastly underrated. When we were talking earlier about, sort of, like, critics and is he aiming this at someone and... Yeah. Like, and, but then he's sort of turning it full circle and sort of making those, in theory, critics, sort of like, what he's representing, say, I don't believe I don't... I don't know, it just came across like really clever, really nice way to end it. It just yeah, it's, it made me it's laugh clever. as well. And then when it ended it, I just felt like, I don't know, and this is why you watch these things, isn't it? So how it makes you feel and stuff. Just yeah, just, thinking like, that was really nice. I felt really fulfilled. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a good ending. And just him saying that catchphrase, keep saying it. It's just like, it's just brilliant. Like he's just been slagging off the whole time. This, isn't, this wouldn't happen in real life. And whoever you've been writing about, People aren't going to believe it exists. Then he comes up with that catchphrase. I just like to know, you know, I suppose the court genus, I'm not Gina, or no, Mrs. Margaret would have told Katie about the courgette incident. You know, otherwise, how else would she know? Or Victor might have actually. Victor seemed more friendly with her. There must have been a point in time where she was doing some cleaning, and he, or you never guess what happened the other day. So, um, yeah, because Katie would probably ask as well, wouldn't she? Where, where's Mrs. Well, boys, she's normally around here. Where's she gone? Yeah. I haven't seen her in a couple of weeks. And then you'd have yeah. to explain what happened, wouldn't you, I guess? Or oh, she like, oh, did your friend like the um the tattoo parlour? I don't yeah. know. It would have been explained, obviously. I don't know what Katie's end game here is as a theatre writer. Does she want to get it to the West End? I don't know. Because obviously, you know how stand-up comedians do small stand-up gigs just to, like warm-ups, don't they? Is this yeah. count as like a warm-up play? Like, we'll just put it on the edge of a pier. And then if it, if it ticks all the boxes and... and 
this Mitch idiot likes it, he'll he'll be able to send it on to some of the inner city theatre managers, um, directors, sorry. It did I, come I, across I, a bit like that, didn't it? Because he was sort of saying, well, here they like it, but they won't like it elsewhere because yeah. they'll ask more questions. Or whatever, yeah, so. yeah. So Someone had a theory that, that Victor's brother, Alfred, who has appeared in one episode, The Broken Reflection, who sent Victor some... Oh, they send him... He, he collected skulls, family heirloom skulls of their ancestors. Mr. Foskett collected false teeth, but he of course died, so it wouldn't be him. The idea is Alfred might have sent this from where he lives in New Zealand, and yeah, but I think he would also explain or at least put a letter in there. I don't know, but it's up for it's up for debate. It's quite fun to have a debate, and I didn't think to ask David Renwick. I mean, he wouldn't have an answer, but I like to hear his theory if he was you know coming coming at it from a fan's point of view vastly underrated episode overall i think and 8.3 out of 10 on imdb is quite a high score amongst um viewers you know halfway through series six and only three episodes left of one for the podcast i mean i'm clearly going to do more episodes but in its organic form as i've said before there's three more episodes to go up four if we include comic relief thought final thoughts on that then christopher i just thought is it it's a very good episode. I remembered watching it at the time, like I say, and it's really enjoyable watching it back. Mm. But it's only like, and actually watching it in the way I did to come on here, it sort of um, makes you delve deeper into it. And I, I like I picked that up from listening to what you do anyway. Yeah, it's just it's just so clever, isn't it? And I think that's one of the things that your podcast has made me realise is that it's not just like this heartwarming thing that I used to watch. It's like it's actually a really underrated comedy it doesn't get the recognition it deserves i don't think amongst others and it's it's not aged that badly either i don't think it's no it, it's, it, I, you can tell it's old by the set and how it looks but otherwise you could probably probably get away with that now whereas some comedies that are older you watch it now and you think like oh i don't know what we need really what i could do with is it's on BritBox and sometimes on uk play or uk drama one of the uk tv channels but Dad's Army gets an airing every Saturday, BBC Two, six o'clock. We could do one from the grave, getting an airing week in, week out, you know, and that would soon that I would get help. Why it doesn't though, because like, money appearances gets on there and others get on there. All those old ones, they do. But Mike Fenton Stevens, who came on, had his theory was there's got to be some there's some contract there between. I don't know, so Renwick, but producers and so forth. That probably quite costly to to replay these episodes but you know you can get them on brit brit box but not everyone's got brit box i think brit box is one of those platforms that's going to take many years to build up popularity and be a proper competitor to netflix well they're, they're slowly taking all the netflix shows that are from itv and bbc off aren't they so that should win some new subscribers but yeah i mean if if, if it's on the beeb then one from the grave would have old fans rediscover the show again like oh, i used to watch this I think so, because I mentioned earlier, I went round to sort of like it's my nephew's birthday. So there's quite a few people there in the garden. Yeah. And I mentioned, oh, I've got to go on time because I've got to go on a podcast to, about One Foot in the Grave. And everyone's reaction is just, oh, One Foot in the Grave. Like it's a, everyone, other than the small kids have obviously never watched it, but sort of like everyone has such a warm reaction to it. I think you'd find it hard to find someone who doesn't like it in a way. Yeah, so it just doesn't get the airtime it deserves. It doesn't, think. yeah. But then again, I kind of like the fact that it's a sort of more of a cult following because you sort of share it amongst the small number of you who actually love it. If it, if it went um, like yeah. mainstream, I, I feel like I still love it. Suddenly, you get people who uh, jump on a bandwagon 
claim to enjoy it and then forget about it and move on to that i don't know it's probably pompous for me yeah. to say that but no i if if choice if i could have the choice yeah absolutely repeat it on bbc sorry i was just saying you said about cult following i'm not saying that the people who listen to this are cult but actually the people who come on your show like and i made the mistake of listening to some in the last week as well like trying to get get the ones i hadn't heard already and like you, some of the guests you've had on talk so warmly and passionately about it i do yeah it's just it's like it's just a real nice group of people isn't it that actively really enjoy this program and yeah sort of like i think it does make it more special in a way it feels yeah. like you're part of like a little community almost of these people that still really appreciate it for what it is it's, thank it's you yeah nice. I, I i just decided i thought i, I always intended to talk about the episode by myself but i thought i'd need to get guests on and most podcasts will have their co-podcasting host with them and you'll have the same two or three talking about each episode which is fine but i could have potentially have asked one or two people people i know to do the podcast with me but i've wanted to open the floor up to other fans out there just you know give them a chance to talk about their favorite or one of their favorite sitcoms anyway on the podcast airwaves and i've had a few you know, repeat guests and uh, make good friends with them. So, yeah, I'm really grateful for people like yourself giving up your, your evening. There's just a couple of notes I picked up from the infamous Richard Webber, One Foot in the Grave story of. So David Renwick, he named the victim Margaret, that the imposters as Hilton and Ruth, Ruthie, from Katie's play, after victim Margaret's American counterparts in the late 90s CBS remake Cosby, the infamous Bill Cosby that is. And the, the, the episode idea was inspired by an insect landing on David Remick's head. And he used this as like a metaphor for the futility of our own experience, which obviously, thinking about it, did clearly shows with Victor done it in that episode. He's just pondering what it's like yeah. all about. Right. According to Richard Webber, he wrote that book. He doesn't quote this. He just says this episode was notably weaker compared to other episodes. And I totally disagree. He's not suggesting it was crap, but compared to some of the other episodes Remick's written. I mean, that's an opinion, isn't it? It probably isn't the in my top five but i just i don't see this as a weak episode at all and that no. night that nighttime shot of the of the pier did require obviously especially hired helicopter obviously drones weren't in um operation then you know your toy drones from the gadget shop but the the location manager of that had to really suck up to the theater management people as the hovering helicopter meant that the audience in the actual theater there's a play going on they couldn't hear what they're watching Oh, wow. so that's quite yeah that's quite um so presumably they have a show on every night you think they choose a night when there wasn't um an audience in there but yeah nevertheless but when i see that shot that makes me want to go to the coast and watch a play in a theater because it just seems quite authentically british yeah very like that's an authentic british thing to do is go watch a play on the coast and then have fish and chips afterwards but yeah great a great episode we can't uh, end this episode without a Meldrew moan. So this is Chris's Meldrew moan. Oh, I do not believe. Will you look at this? Bastards. Can you believe the nerve of this? A skin their ruddy heights for them. Um, my Meldrew moan is forgetting that I should have done a Meldrew moan when we were recording the episode. Uh, no, I'm only kidding. Um, my Meldrew moan is 
people in cars who don't say thank you when you let them out. I, I wait and I wave them out. And I think, oh, I'm such a good person letting them out. And then they don't say thank you and they completely undo all of that goodness because I get really cross. It's just like common courtesy, isn't it? Have common courtesy to say thank you for letting me out. Does my night in. I don't know why. Thank you, Chris, for your time. It's been a pleasure to have uh, a member of the family on the podcast. If anyone should contact you, you know, maybe to ask for your opinion on what we discussed today, what what would be your Twitter handle? He's an old man, he's forgotten. Have a look. I've got it. I do come across like an old man. I feel a bit victim elder now, like looking really closely at my phone. Why am I? I'm at a Chris Latham. At a Chris Latham. I mean, I'm on your Facebook group as well. So um, yeah, you, you can follow the podcast at One Foot in the Pod on Twitter, One Foot in the Podcast yeah. on Facebook and Instagram. And thank you for for those who have sent in reviews of late. I should like to give a little shout out to Julie and her podcast host Natalie, who run the podcast Music Sounds Better with Two, where they they take a topical subject around music. Obviously, uh, for example, the Britney Spears ongoing matter with a father's rather unfair ownership of her basic human rights that sort of thing they talk about obviously 90s 2000s pop hits and nostalgia so any music fans who like to hear a couple of um, friendly scottish accents in your luggles i do recommend music sounds better with two so a hi to julie and next week i will have david on the podcast to discuss threatening weather another minute by minute real time episode uh thank god i got david i've um David's been on before. He is great with conversation, especially with this kind of episode. So I look forward to having David on. Uh, Chris, thanks very much for coming on to the podcast. I look forward to you listening to it back and maybe coming on again in in future. Have you had fun? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I have. I've like I've probably lowered your your uh, standard of guest considerably, but I've had fun doing it, and it's. Don't should be, be nice to uh to join and be a guest on your show so, yeah, thanks no. for having me it's uh it's been fun it's thank it's you very much okay the good work it's been brilliant i like thank listening you. to this well thank you everyone for listening i'll be back next week take care and enjoy all the best to you both then bye